0: Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. And if you're new to this podcast, there's about 150 episodes in the back catalogue. You can hear them on any of the podcast platforms, including Spotify. Uh, this one's Conversation with Graham Jeffries. He records under the name The Cake Kitchen, and that was a band, a full band. Now it's largely his project with uh, a musician or two in tow. Uh, He's based in New Zealand but a a, a traveller of the world, in fact he spent a lot of time outside of New Zealand but for the last few years he's been back Um, and in that time he's written a memoir, he's written his life story, it's a, a great book uh, totally recommend it. We have a big conversation about that book. Um, we also talk about the making of the records with the Cake Kitchen and with his earlier bands, many of them with his brother Peter Jeffries, a musician in his own right. They grew up together in, in small town Taranaki, as many New Zealand music fans will know, uh, seemed to teach each other a bunch of instruments and listen to a whole lot of records and made some of the, the best noisy pop music that's come out of this country. And Graham continues to do that. Um, big conversation. This I'd never met Graham. I love his music, and um, we'd interacted a bit online, sort of aware of each other, um, but we had never actually met. Um, and so we start off talking about his his musical relationship with uh, with people like Cat Power, who actually opened for. Uh, for The Cake Kitchen over in the States and um, so yeah a really interesting level of success The Cake Kitchen maybe not everyone in New Zealand's heard of them but they're certainly well respected as a musical name around the globe and uh, and Graham's just one of those guys a prolific musician and artist that has continued to do the work to, to have a day job on the side when he's needed to and to pour his energies into writing some wonderful idiosyncratic music um, so I love this conversation, it was great to finally meet him, the book is well worth checking out um, and uh, yeah, you can hear us having a big old chin wag in a minute, this is me and Graham Jeffries We've only just met, you walked in the door a few minutes ago and I think that's the first time we've ever met, have we met?
1: Uh, I mean I know you, I know you, I know you. No, yeah. I've seen you around and I guess yeah. you've seen me around but yeah. Yeah. we've never really spoken to that's each other it. It. I've, I've, I've
0: seen you play it. and I've seen you around oh. town, that's exactly it and I'm I'm almost mentioned in your book. Do you know that? How? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not really mentioned in it, but you talk about cat power and you say yeah, that the review in the Dominion Post was unflattering and, of your um, live show, and that was me that okay, r- wrote that, yeah. the review. And as I was reading the line, I was like, oh God, he's not going to name me. Oh, no, line.
1: no, like, uh, <laughs> really? I didn't pull the
0: button. Yeah, no, that would have been me. Because I remember that Town Hall show.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah, and you didn't like it.
0: I didn't like it. I I really like a lot of her music, but I've had, I've seen her perform live three times, and I reckon I've seen three of her. Stinkist shows okay, or something like is. I've j- I have not had the live ex- I know she's been described as a, a, a an up and down problematic artist for a lot of people yeah, she's yeah, yeah. you know she's had her, her difficulties with performing
2: uh-huh.
0: and uh, she's garnered rave reviews and then the absolute opposite uh-huh. and I really feel like maybe the three times I've seen her mostly in three different environments
1: uh-huh. all in New Zealand or all in Wellington uh, okay.
0: first time was at the Paramount movie theatre okay, And she Mostly played uh, She played guitar quite a bit actually But she sat on the piano still playing guitar And she got into this thing where She didn't want any applause And she didn't want any sort of between song Banter or gaps So she just kind of played a medley of songs And and people wanted to clap It wasn't flat out terrible, but it just uh-huh. became a bit uncomfortable. Then the second time was that town hall show with the full band. Okay, that had moments, but uh-huh. I, I think I just didn't like that material as okay. much as yeah, I like some I liked of her other. So much, yeah, right? I didn't like that album that uh-huh. much. Uh-huh. So I think that's. The, I love that album the greatest.
1: So the thought, spoken part, box like, Bob's pretty amazing in that, isn't
0: it? Yeah, I oh know. There's some cool. There's some cool stuff on. I think on all of her records, uh-huh. and I, the brand new record is uh-huh. amazing. I'm kind of like bring her out now uh-huh. because okay. the brand new album is probably the most I've really the most I've liked her, but yeah. um, and then yeah, Some of from... the
1: shows do go a bit pear-shaped when yeah. she's had a bit too much to drink, or and Sean's a really sensitive person yes. so every now and again um, life gets on top of her, yeah, like yeah. The, I, I guess we all react differently to the <coughs> the shows and stuff like that mm. believe me there have been ones that have been more cataclysmic than that mm. or, or I think it mentions in the book the one in k uh, she went and hid in the toilet halfway through, more or less. And, uh, yeah.
0: Well, the first time I saw her, I had I mean, read the re- I'd yeah. read the review of the Sydney show where she oh. had got under the piano and screamed, yeah. to "Get
1: out!" Like to but the it's audience. It's yeah. I mean, to, to, to be a performer and to yeah. have that, to be so uh, affected by the audience, I feel really sorry for her. Like, I mean, I guess oh, same. as a yeah, punter, yeah. it's not that good for paying a ticket for it. But just as a, as a friend, I mean, she's a friend of mine. So yeah. I, I feel really sorry for her when I see her go through that, and I think. Gee, is it worth it like i mean you know it's
0: kind of I, I think she's largely had an, a pretty understanding audience right like, yeah, like people yeah. that not just not just in that way that people buy into the myth but uh-huh. people understand her not just backstory but but the baggage associated with performing for her yeah, people uh-huh. know these stories of uh-huh. tricky shows and bad reviews and and uh-huh. the, all of the things that you're talking about that are part of her personality i my understanding is that her fans know all of that stuff. Oh, okay. And so yeah. they a lot of them... It's a bit like people who repeatedly go to Bob Dylan shows, I right. guess, in a way. It and, gets and, a lot of bad reviews. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I yeah. mean, I, I avoided seeing him for 10 years, and then I went oh. last year, and I loved it. How was it? It was great. Yeah, it was the best time. Oh. I mean, I'd seen him three other times, but that was in the 90s and early 2000s. I'd left it at 10 or 12 years. Oh. And I actually think when I saw him last year in Auckland, it was the... the the single best show I've seen of his. so oh, that's great! Yeah, a- other people, pro- other I know, other people talked about walking out of it. Right. You know, so it's um, so you met Sean Cat Power, um, as a lot of people know her. You met right. you met her years ago. She was your opening act.
1: Yeah, like uh, when, when we played in Chapel Hill when Jean-Yves and I were on Merge as the the French um, lineup. Um, they were in the support band and mm. we were totally shocked that Steve Shelley was in the support band. Yeah. Like I think, Wow, okay. Like the um and, and they played the Sleepwalker which was Chris Matthews' song yeah. on, on Bird of Bees and they played it in a different key, it's in C and they played it in the key of F. Yeah. And, and i was really amazed and, and um thought, wow that, that's really really cool like i mean amazed
0: so, they even knew it you mean
1: or did yeah like that you yeah. expect the support band to play this kind of punishment cover when you get to Chapel yeah. hill like it's yeah. the last thing you would sort of think. but also she'd changed it slightly i mean uh, the, the, there there's a different emphasis on it and it was mm. a female version of loneliness and and uh, alienation rather mm. than a male version of loneliness mm. and mm. alienation so in, in that way I, I found it really fantastic i really liked the fact that they had done that and I, yeah. I sat down and showed it uh what it was in the key of c and then thought oh, why did i bother to do that sounds fun um, <laughs> yeah yeah so from that point on um tim tim Bolian was also in that early cat power
0: yeah.
1: lineup and they were really really good uh i thought they played great shows but then when we we went back to the usa for some more shows after that and she played solo there and the solo shows were also sort of like really good. I mean, it's like her voice is the most amazing thing. I think. Yes. You know, like yeah, absolutely. like It's not a guitar playing or piano playing. No, it's actually the singing. That stuff's rudimentary. Like the amount of soul. That, that stuff's yeah.
0: pretty rudimentary, really, oh. actually. But her voice
1: is, yeah. Oh, so you're sitting there and she's singing with this incredible amount of emotion, and it's it's very difficult not to be affected by that. I, I thought that was fantastic. Mm. You know, I was like, it was almost like somebody being naked in front of you not in a sexual way but yeah. in an emotional way and to be that brave in front of all those people mm. i like, took my hat off to it so when things like say when she played in creyfeld and 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 or um, and the guy would yell out you're shit you're shit from the audience mm. and she thought he was yelling out show us she tits." it's much better that she thought that than, than <laughs> yeah, the other yeah, than the other but <laughs> you know to, to have somebody that naked emotionally and mm. to have the audience hostile i can see why it was a good idea to hide from them you know
0: yeah yeah totally like, the so other the other thing she does well is outside of her voice is as you know you mentioned the the cover she did of the, yeah. this kind of punishment but the range of material she brings like obviously yeah, well, the, obviously
1: the cover is also amazing too, obviously yeah. people
0: love her songs and oh. she has written some great songs but but she has a there's a generosity of I guess it's a music fan speaking to other music fans, saying these are the things I discovered. You know, yeah. like obviously she's recorded several of them on the yeah. covers albums, but mm-hmm. anytime you see her, you know suddenly her version of Satisfaction will come out, which is still yeah. still yeah. wonderful.
1: Which think there's no petrol left in Satisfaction. Yeah. everybody must have covered it, but somehow she has a different slant.
0: I would rather. He- I mean, apart from Devo, did a oh, great yeah, thing yeah, with Devo it, but, but <laughs> I would rather hear. I mean, I've I've heard the Rolling Stones live play Satisfaction twice and I far prefer hearing when Cat Power does it yeah, you know it's uh. just more interesting she just yeah she just turns on yeah, well, we'll something
1: like Wild as the Wind which is like very, mm. very lots of instruments in Bowie's version and very very much a band thing yeah. take that down to just piano and vocal something really magical happens to it I, I can't really I haven't analysed what it is mm. but there's real soul in that so I, I think essentially her, her fans really um, feel that and that's why they're more lenient with regards to things going wrong with shows you know a little, like that the, um
0: a little bit of a parallel to Nina Simone in a way really yeah in terms of the mental health the vulnerability yeah. the the you know the exquisite voice and uh. and interpretation skills and bring, you know really yeah, taking other songs. people's songs yeah. and making
1: them your right yeah, yeah right? being proud
0: uh. of other people's songs being equally proud of uh. your own songs and other people's songs uh-huh. yeah yeah um, so you you also had I mean we'll go we'll go back but while okay. we're on this sort of tack you I was interested in reading your your book your memoir Time Flying Backwards which is fairly new yeah and, it's in ter- yeah, well, yeah 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 um, I was interested in in thinking about how you. You mention cat power and you mention basically the the mountain goats are essentially an opening act for you at one point yeah, although that's yeah. more by it's almost like a double billing isn't it but you decide uh, by dynamics it wasn't, it
1: wasn't because i mean like in germany they weren't that big at that right. point you know in 1995 a yeah. was bigger than mountain goats in germany because we had domestic releases there we yes. had stuff with semaphore and then we changed to rough trade yeah and so we had like four domestic releases um, yeah they didn't have any but they were part of ajax europe which was also rothman the player that i worked for uh by edmund Epple. um we had introduced our music to the germans via there and the tour was organized by dirk Hugsom who was a, a big mountain goats fan right. as well so it's kind of they they i suppose they were a support band in a way but they were a, a support band with a good amount of clout and yeah. neither john nor peter hughes had any issues with that you know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. um, John even sent me some material to work on and I I put guitar arrangements and stuff into it, similar to what I would have done with this kind of punishment. Um, Rothman was actually working on a Mountain Goats album that we were going to release, but it kind of went pear-shaped in a way when sort of Rothman collapsed somehow. Um, So there was like that sort of collaborative thing. But um, John's a fascinating person. Yeah, have you? He ironed his jeans and stuff like that, which I couldn't believe I thought... You iron your jeans and he for every every show had worked out what the set was before he even arrived you know mm. like the, i think maybe he changed it slightly and we we tried to influence him to change it yeah. a little bit just for our own requests but um he seems an incredibly organized intense person
0: he i mean he was at one point best described as a as a sort of cult artist and i, I guess he and the mountain darts still arguably are but then again you know, he's a, um, a successful novelist now a couple of times yeah. over. and He's and a really creative
1: person. I yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's out him in a way. Yeah.
0: Do you, have you kept in touch with him at least musically? Like, do you follow no, what he's really. up like, to?
1: The, 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 um, I kind of, like, faded out when, when the Rothman album uh, didn't come out mm. and I'd paid for the tapes and stuff like that and recorded albums of the stuff, more or less. Um, it just sort of faded out. Uh I got to the point where, where, where Nothing for Just came Out, which I played on and I didn't get a copy of it, I sort of thought, what's the point in doing yeah. this if so I don't even get a copy of it? <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't get any money from it, I put this time into it, um, yeah. I got Miss John Soda, Stiffy, Warm to play on it and couldn't give her a copy either, so I sort of felt a bit miffed with it. And also, yeah. um, when Roffman went pear-shaped, I was also didn't have a lot of money, so I, I ended up moving from Bavaria to Nordrhein-Westfalen and eventually got a job working for Rough Trade but it was down to the poverty strikes again so yeah. one of the things that happened with the poverty strikes is only essential things happened, yes, and so yeah, yeah. I didn't put any more effort into it. I mean I've still got the tapes, they're still in the tape library, I found them mm. the other day um, there's even like a radio session where we did a two-way army cover and where i played improvised piano to his songs just yeah. live and radio hamburg yeah we shouldn't it to be really really good i mean he, he would say this one's in d and then he'd play it <laughs> and you'd know, yeah. roughly play in the key of d and, and and only have the sharps that would be in the key of d and it would work um so it, it could have been really really good but even then we at least managed to do something and mm. and you know the music business is such that things just collapse every now and again for whatever reason it's just mm. kind of didn't happen um, but in those days the Mountain Goats were like an acoustic thing they were yeah, like acoustic yeah, yeah. guitar with bass guitar now they've got drums now they've got a full thing. band so yeah, it's
0: yeah. kind of changed the pellets like really days, changed yeah. yeah well where I was going with that though too was okay so Mountain Goats and Cat Power at the time that they opened for Kate Kitchen they are legitimately smaller acts, they're low key, they're, yeah, they're they got they're, a lot they're, That's <laughs> right. They're, but they're on their way up. Yeah. But you because of the structure of your book, you write about the cake kitchen for the most part and then towards the end of the book we hear about, you know, the other bands that, oh. that you know, that you that you've been in and a lot of those were with your brother Peter and oh. you you mention being the opening act for some quite big name Oh. international bands The Fall
1: yeah playing with The Fall was great yeah. I really enjoyed that a
0: lot I was just interested in the dynamic of it the, oh. the, the idea that you actually I guess in a way you achieve what maybe some other bands probably well, a lot of other bands probably set out to do the, the first big excitement is being on the bill with someone oh. big oh. and then eventually you are the headliner with Right. You know, someone that, if not of note They, they really become of note right. afterwards So that's quite interesting in your story
1: I mean, all, all those things kind of like It's amazing how Every year the pecking order changes And you've got people yeah. coming up and going down People's stars fade or They lose their record deal or whatever it yeah. So it's always a continually changing thing mm. um, With most of the people that I've played with That they didn't care about that They didn't really care much yeah. about the pecking order You know, someone like before were really friendly they, 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 Doug Hood had organised them to come here and they stayed in motels rather than hotels and yeah. rather than um, bring gear with them they borrowed all the support band's gear, yeah. we just like, put all our gear on the stage on the, on the dance floor rather and they picked through it and worked out what they wanted to use so, Is this
0: when they recorded the album that yeah, came out on whole, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's all
1: done with, with New Zealand yeah. band's gear and yeah. um, uh, So that was really, really great. And and also the quality of their performance was really, really good. Two drummers, they were totally Mm, tight. mm. Um, The material was really good. Mark Riley was also really important for them. He was at his peak at that point. Um, I think one of the highlights is when Peter and I went up to the fish and chip shop, Uncle's on the corner of uh, Simon Street and Queen Street yeah. with Mark Riley to get some fish and chips. I mean, like that, uh, and he thought they were really good and we sort of thought, oh, Uncle's isn't really that good, you know. Like. Yeah. But when I went and lived in England and, and bought my first slot of fish and chips, it was just disgusting. Like, you know, the fish was totally greasy, the chips were totally greasy. It's kind of like you thought, maybe I should bury this on the side of the road. So... I can understand why he would have thought Uncourse was pretty good, but just more um, being able to do that, you know, go go up and show the guy where the the chip bar is and talk to him and stuff like that. He also sold his guitar to Paul from Sporting Life. Right. Which, I mean, I don't know how they got past (laughs) it on the carnet. Uh, (laughs) But, again, Carl Burns played that guitar, and Doug Doug took me backstage, and Carl Mm. Burns was tuning it up, and I guess Doug figured... Graham's got a pointy guitar. Maybe he wants that one, you know. But um, <laughs> as it was, it turned out that Carl Burns was the guy who told me about when you take a guitar to, on a plane, you have to loosen the strings or the neck warps. So yeah. I, that was one of the rock and roll tips I wouldn't have expected yeah. to get from before. Um, <laughs> but just little things like that. It's always the little things that mm. are the, the really well, you, magical things about it.
0: And you put, sprinkle several of those through your book. Like, yeah, I, I like putting almost, yeah. almost mundane stories, but for the fact of who's involved in them in some cases, or or really, really interesting insights into, you know. I mean, we're all the
1: same, like, I don't really believe in stars. I think everyone's equal, like, equality for right across the board. So Mm. whatever I could do in the book to downplay that sort of thing, I was quite happy to do. You know, the, the very fact that everybody wakes up in the morning with a spotty tongue and Grumbles to themselves <laughs> when they make their morning coffee, but that's yeah. great. I mean, everybody is equal. You know, there aren't really. I don't really see people as being stars, you know, mm-hmm. in a way. Or I, I suppose there must be a few somewhere, but but to some extent, I think everyone's created equal. So the, the well,
0: yeah, I mean, there's that. Un- I guess there's that way. untouchable level of yeah. stardom. you yeah. whatever it is, your Brad Pitts, your um, yeah, I don't bonos, think on the yeah, you like, know,
1: Milena Dietrich, or sure. Greta Garbo, or yeah. I'd see those people as being more like stars. Not, yeah, yeah. i that. really thought Brad Pitt was particularly um, good material, but then again, I suppose I haven't watched TV for twenty five <laughs> or thirty years. <laughs> I just
0: I've mean they're published. on the, I just mean they're on a level that's completely inaccessible in terms of you're not going to go and walk down the road and have fish and chips with him. But yeah, the, yeah. but the fact that you can do that with Mark Riley, or or if he was. You could certainly have had a pint with Marky e. Smith, or yeah, you know, yeah. th- and that that's cool and interesting, and, and it,
1: it's how it should be. The, the other amazing thing about the falls that they started drinking. at sounds unlimited at four <laughs> o'clock, and they didn't go on on stage till midnight, so wow. they had eight hours of boozing.
0: So solid and, day's work before. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, a, a,
1: and. Um, it didn't seem to affect them at all they they played really really marvellously Mm, and you think mm, well gee if I'd have been drinking for eight hours I probably would have yeah been in (laughs) bed probably fallen over trying to get on the stage (laughs) so I guess maybe coming from Manchester they have this um, tolerance to alcohol hardwired yeah it's unknown to someone like myself but yeah yeah, they they were really great I really enjoyed those sides and it was great that Chris recorded it on his four track I mean it's it's funny with the forlorn, with the live recordings seem to sound pretty much the same as the studio ones. Like they're almost unbreakable, Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, yeah. Well, before we go back and try and establish some sort of timeline, since we've started talking about the book, why did you write it? Why now? Why? I mean, you wrote it a wee while ago. Yeah. You know, how long did you spend on it? When did you first... I know there's some diary stuff in it, but when mm. did you first think... I'm gonna collate some memories and
1: make a book. I resigned from my job here after working in Wellington for six years, and that was when I wrote it primarily. Um, the reason for writing it, I guess, was that if anybody is gonna tell my story, I'd rather it be me. Yeah. And to some extent, every time you do an interview, every time you do uh, something with the media, things always come out misrepresented. There's always especially when it's somebody interviews you and interviews you and then writes it down. Yeah. They either kinda yeah. understand your accent or they misunderstand what you say. So virtually everything that you has come out in the media has always had wrong facts about it, wrong opinions. Um, and that's like you that's and,
0: you being kind to the journalist and yeah. suggesting they have decent intentions too and yeah, just yeah. heard something wrong there were also but, but those mean, that actually I've got seek i a very to...
1: mumbly grumbly accent sure. so most of my interviews have been with people who speak foreign languages yeah, I've yeah. done a lot of New Zealand interviews because I was living abroad for 17 years so the reason for the book really was to tell my own story and, and to at least have some way of explaining to anybody who was interested the small amount of people maybe who would be what actually happened and mm. how it happened and also to offer a ray of hope like I mean neither the nocturnal projections or this kind of punishment or the cake kitchen have ever gotten much media attention in New Zealand. And yet we managed to make it outside of New Zealand in the real world. Yeah. Um without an incredible amount of hype with no manager, with no publishing funds. No um, machine behind yeah, it. Yeah, no all. machine, just basically yeah. rednecks from Taranaki. <laughs> um so I wanted to put that through. I wanted to offer a ray of hope for somebody who ha- hasn't got mm. media behind them, managers, all those things. If you believe in yourself and just do it and put it out there, there is a chance that it can float, you know, or even, like say, something like going to Russia. And, and I got interviewed there, and the guy said, you know, uh, can you tell me something encouraging for Russian musicians? And it was exactly the same thing of um, just do what you want to do, believe in yourself, get it as good as you can, given the limitations of money and all those things, and just put it out into the world. So mm. the whole thing of writing the book was just to try and... Um, make that uh, uh, a plane for people to see you know like the the the, it amazes me how far it's got for never having a manager for never using Mm. a publisher uh, recording on four tracks it's kind of it's all the cheapest and most time-consuming way yeah yeah, uh, yeah That doesn't take into account writing the songs, but documenting them and, and doing all the covers yourself. Every last thing has been cottage industry, so it's but kind of amazing that you've gotten that far. I mean, it speaks,
0: like speaks to, I to guess, my, my my favourite thing, which is there's no excuse for you know doing the work. Just
1: yeah, you ju- just do it. Like if you, are do and it. Mostly with musicians and, and, and writers too, they they just feel the need to do it. You, you do it without even thinking why you're doing mm. it. So I didn't consciously sit down and think, right, I'm going to write a. Um, my memoirs now but i just i also had an idea for a novel and i was thinking okay now that i'm not working which one should i do should i do the novel or should i do the memoir if i'm going to do one and i thought the memoir was the easiest one to do first yeah. um because it was basically dealing around facts so it had a, you could easier to hang a framework on the facts yeah. whereas the novel you're dealing with imagination i mean i started the novel a few times um but I always sort of got, got to maybe a couple of chapters and ran out of gas or I did it at a point where I was also working so it wasn't possible mm. to, you, to write a book you sort of need to have three or four months where you work on it every day yeah, and then yeah. you kind of get somewhere. It's true. And you
0: can, as you sort of suggested, you can, you can almost lose the thread a bit with a memoir because you know you're going to pick it, like you can leave it alone and come yeah, back yeah, to it or yeah. you can change, you can go off on a tangent and yeah. it's all still... Uh, same story because
1: because it's around the facts of my life that's right i lived there in that country from that point and then i moved to that country and then whatever it is you can kind of like pick it up as you say and 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 document it i mean it was almost like you'd relive those things you think okay when i got to bavaria what did it actually feel like what amazed me the most oh was a cannonball in the clock tower fired by the (laughs) swedish in 1770 that was still sitting there that um things like that you know you you could sort of basically relive it or you you would go back and listen to the material that you wrote then or look at photographs and things and and just try and put yourself back in that frame of mind I mean in theory as human beings everything that ever happened to us we can remember if we can access it you know that the nature makes you where all your experiences are combined in your brain somewhere in case you might need them for a life-saving situation so it's just a matter of accessing what happened to you I mean yeah there were some points where i rewrote a lot of it uh, over time and things like say the russian tour diary, i i just grabbed that from how i'd written it but then when i looked at it i realized that since i was writing it every day without reading what i would written the day before <laughs> i repeated an incredible amount of stuff yeah. so i had to delete all of that sort yeah. of stuff and i took out a lot of the detail of the dairy high recording sessions because it wasn't really relevant to um, document it that thoroughly but I left some of it in
2: yeah.
1: um, so everything like that was just like juggling it around and trying to make it concise, I guess my editor also shocked me by saying you wanted to knock 100 pages off it and make it slightly more concise and told me about the typos and the spelling mistakes and some of the, the grammar mistakes You know, like yeah. the, 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 I think when you start speaking foreign languages you lose the sense of tense in English somehow right, so yeah, they, were, yeah. they were like hads instead of has and stuff like that and Mm. things that, and and I thought I felt really stupid about that oh my god, I've become illiterate but uh, it was a good exercise to actually go back through it and continue to rewrite it, and the first draft was finished in October 2014 so by the time it actually got published in December 2018, I updated it all the time because I didn't want it to be old so I would have to go through, there's another four years added on (laughs) and a hundred pages taken out, but in actual fact 100 pages weren't taken out, we just made the print smaller. The print yes. is quite small in some ways. Um, and if there was something that I really, really wanted in there uh, that he wanted to delete, I would fight for it in a way. Um, things like the story about the cat teaching me how to catch him out. <laughs> yeah. He said, We've killed the cat, we didn't really want the cat in. I said, It was in a really amazing thing, I mean. Um, <laughs> and the tui, the one about finding the tui, where the tui died in my hand that was taken out and I reinstated that because to me that was a really major secret of life that had been disclosed to me Mm. walking down water materials in the R.O. Valley so uh, there were things that I fought for but some of the things I think it was better that he did make it more concise or that he took out some other things it was like a sort of compromise in a way you know that the was writing music you pretty much you write the music how you want to have it and and don't edit it, but with a book, it seems like uh, he would he would use terms like my readers would rather have, and you couldn't really argue with it. So to some extent, since so I'd never written a book, and this guy's dad has been publishing books since seventy eight or something like that. It's a family yeah. firm, so I kind of like took his word for it. And I mean, I was I, just, I didn't really have any experience in writing books, so I kind of like was prepared to alter it. And I, th- I think it came out probably better in the end. I mean, uh, it's always difficult to think that do I really go on so badly, or? or um, but I think it's slightly more universal because of him mm. editing it and well, going for it.
0: You mentioned uh, Sean Marshall from Cat Power presenting herself or her songs naked in the in the spiritual or metaphorical sense. Yeah. And any you know you've done that for many years. Any performer, particularly performing solo
1: is doing that yeah, the solo is a really hard one isn't it you know if you've got someone up there you can say look, yeah at all the that's right of their hair, so... or not many here tonight or you know you've got someone yeah. to talk to but when you go up playing solo you're totally on your own mm. you tend to rush into it in the way you work well, one always has to take five seconds just to centre oneself before starting
0: mm-hmm. was there a comp? was it a comparable uh, experience handing your words your life in words over to someone else to to Co-author some of these editorial decisions. Like, was there is there a vulnerability? Did you experience a? Oh man, like uh, this, this dude really is think pulling about my. To tell
1: you the truth. So I mean, I just kind of like handed it over and thought, well, mm. I've just written about what my life was like, so I didn't think about whether I should have said those things or, or not. Or the only criteria for censoring it was I didn't put anything in it that I thought anybody that I knew would object to. So uh-huh. say that the. the Stories about um, p- being bad in Bavaria or, or some of my German girlfriends. I knew that they wouldn't object to those stories before yes. I said them. If there was anything that I thought somebody would object to, or that they would be embarrassed by, then I didn't put it in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess it's like it's slightly sanitized in a way. But there are some. I'm wondering about who will invite me to stay at their house after we've done <laughs> that book. In some ways. <laughs> Oh, no, don't let Graham stay here. <laughs> it could be disastrous for that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's go back and establish a bit of a timeline around this because we can't give away too many things from the book. We want people to buy the book or okay. read the book. Um, uh, so you, you mentioned being a, a Taranaki redneck. Yeah. Um, tell me about growing up and particularly how and when you discover music uh-huh. or creativity.
1: Um, I, I guess I discovered music via records like Peter and I were both 45 nuts and then I were nuts so um, and especially when dad left when I was about 8 um, our mother really saw how much we loved music and encouraged would buy us a, a dedicated follower of fashion by the, the kinks with sitting yeah. on my sofa on the back side and, and as a present and, and so music was always a really good bonding thing for us and um, I pestered her for a couple of years about trying to buy me a guitar and I think she, she thought, OK, the boys really love music, so she bought me an acoustic guitar and paid for my first years of lessons and bought Peter a drum kit. So again, it was another thing to keep us together. Mm. Um, we had all these records, Suddenly, we had these instruments, so um, the idea was to try and work out the songs on the record so that we could play them because mm. we, were, you know, we were both really big music fans and that fan thing... Is always stayed. I'm, I'm always a fan in a way. I've only tried to make music um, for myself that moved me in the same way as the music that, that, that I listened to, so mm. like a, to mirror it back. Um, so I guess after about a week of having a guitar and a set of drums, we wrote our first song. I think it had three chords in it, like, and, and a 4 4 beat. And that, we just sort of kept hammering away at that. Formed bands at high school. Um, just kind of kept going, you know. It was like mm. it was, um, coming from a small town Taranaki, you got to make your own fun. I mean, it must be the same in Hawke's Bay, I suppose. So yeah. to some extent, you, you get used to make, making your own fun and doing your own things. And, and to have, I mean, then I got an electric guitar and an amplifier, a 15-watt Concord amp and diplomat-type, strap type uh, guitar. And, again, that was another thing. Suddenly we were louder, you know. Mm-hmm. like the Playing acoustic guitar with drums, Peter had to play the drums really quietly and I had to play the acoustic guitar really hard yeah, yeah. to do a song. But with electric guitar, suddenly it was, you know, more equal. Yeah. So, again, it was just we kept adding on, adding on, adding on. We, we were writing stuff, you know, at high school, which was probably best. Lucky that it's never been released. <laughs> yeah, you know, or, yeah. <laughs> or tapes probably should be burned. But it's more the, the, the sharing and the camar- camaraderie yeah. of, of doing that um, it was a really big thing for us to share, and we made music together for a very long time. You know, I mean, Nocturnal Projections must have written over 150 songs. Um, this kind of punishment, only about 32 were released, but there must have been another 30 written. Wow, yeah. Um,
0: and the best of that material, both those bands, is is around and available and sounds great to okay, this day, yeah. you know, like it really yeah. does. Um, and you. Perform some of that stuff under the guise of Kate Kitchen. Some of those songs um, made it
1: into some of your sets. Yeah, I've always continued to play that yeah. stuff. So I've never publicised the fact that I have, but mm. um, but people
0: can spot it if they know. Okay yeah, the yeah. That yeah. anyone yeah. who comes
1: along to the Cake Kitchen or to my brother's shows um, yeah. is is knowledgeable of what's happened before. So I always thought those recordings, like although the versions are relatively good, the songs themselves are actually something that's a living thing. So when you play it again or you resurrect it, um, making this formula work again. So to some extent, mm. although the recording is a good the actual thing of the songs themselves. I mean I can remember how to play ninety five percent of the music that I would bomb with my brother. Yeah. Um, to, to resurrect it and play it again gives mm. it another lease of life and, and the, there's something about standing in a room and hearing something at constant volume that, that makes it new again, you know? I mean I Sometimes maybe I might change the key of it or something like that or I might play it on a different instrument. Um, my role with my brother's stuff was mainly making up the music beds uh, and he would write lyrics to them after the music beds were completed. Mm. So that was our modus operandi for the nocturnal projections at least. Um,
0: so you guys are very separate lyricists? Yeah. like Pretty much, that, uh, yeah. Uh,
1: for myself, when I, for, when I write... Stuff I write the lyrics and the music at the same time but Mm. with the music I did with Peter the music would always have to be finished first and completed and on a cassette and he would go away and write the lyrics for Mm -hmm. it which I don't really work like that I work note for note, riff for riff Um, the only one we didn't do like that was Could It Be Increased, the third song on the another EP which we actually did line for line, riff for riff but usually it would be Peter would want the music to be complete and on a tape before he would write the first the The first or whatever it would be and it worked pretty well like I mean he wrote really good lyrics and uh, I I guess we had a fairly high mortality rate about maybe 30% of it would would be stymied after a certain Mm. point you'd say I don't feel that good about those lyrics anymore I don't want to do that song or whatever it would be Um, it was also very hard for me to get lyrics through because he was so fussy about lyrics he would Maybe say we shouldn't do that song because that's like that, or I don't like those lyrics, or whatever it would be. Mm. Um, which is frustrating in ways, but then again, the, the success rate that we had of stuff that we agreed upon was always relatively high, so there's always more than enough material. Mm. Um, strangely enough, recently I've actually gone back through the archive, which is like maybe I've got maybe a hundred reel to reel tapes of stuff that's been recorded from the 80s onwards and actually sort of gone through and found a lot of the songs that have been rejected or just sort of...
0: Are you finding, no enthusiasm some, finding the... some
1: gems? Yeah, I've actually found yeah. an incredible amount of stuff that I've actually gone to the point of either finishing or, or resurrecting or working out what was wrong with it, yeah. um, which has been a very good, satisfying process because the a lot of it's recorded on Ampex 456, which is a tape that doesn't age very well, so that the time to do it is now rather than than later. And sometimes it'll just be a tiny little change of emphasis on something that will make it different or you'll think actually maybe maybe those 20 bars shouldn't have any lyrics at all. The, the, the lyrics that were on those 20 bars cluttered it too much so you'll take that out. Um, and then, Yeah, actually that, that really, really works now or, or with the hindsight of writing another couple of hundred songs before those songs were written, you have the ability to be able to work out what was wrong with them.
0: Mm. The portrait that you're kind of painting here And and also in the book Is of I guess of you and Peter both But particularly you uh, A a musician Or a songwriter who kind of Hits the ground running and keeps going Like a prolific writer
1: Um, Yeah but only because Small town mentality, nothing else to do Like I mean make your own fun I, I really enjoy writing songs I really enjoy Putting those things together, it's a privilege to do it.
0: But you say something in the book around um, never really feeling particularly blocked or anything like that. That it's you know it's uh, yeah that's something you, I've never you really find it no. easy you find yeah. it easy to whether it's good or not is obviously a separate conversation for both you to have with yourself <laughs> yeah. and then for other people to have when it's released if it is released. But yeah. Yeah. but the point is you you sit down and find it easy to go to work as a writer. Um, as a songwriter. Yeah, there
1: always seems to be things to write about. There always seems to be melodies around. You just have to find the time to isolate yourself and slow down your metabolism to the point that you can drink them. So Mm -hmm. to some extent, there's never been that sort of writer's block thing. Um, There's been things about running out of record labels and being very bad at business (laughs) and and shooting oneself in the foot and And losing a label uh, for a stupid reason, whatever it would be. So the... That's occasionally stymied the output by not having a label. <laughs> yeah. But the writing thing, I've always found writing yeah a really relatively easy to do, or at least to get the initial um, clay to work with. You know, the, mm. the refining of it sometimes can take years, and, and sometimes it will take me eight or nine years long or longer to actually finish a song satisfactorily to the mm. point where I think, OK, I can't get that any better. But there's always lots of them on the brew, you know. Mm. So to some extent, you've got these ideas, and rather than panic if you can't work out what's wrong with them, think, okay, I guess I'm going to stop trying to play that song because it's driving me nuts. And then mm. maybe a month later, you'll go back to it, or maybe four or five years later, you'll go back to it, or you might forget about it totally. Like say something like on "Calm Before the Storm," um, the song "Mrs. Fishbone" mm. was the last song that Robert Key and I worked on before I went to London, and I went to London on the August 1990 And in two thousand and thirteen I finally released it. I just totally <laughs> yeah, cool. forgot about it. Like, yeah. uh, and then I was um, rehearsing with a guy called Groucho Kangaro, who's one of the German drummers, I guess. Oh. And just sort of happened to remember it and re- remember the song and chucked it out to see what it was like the way that played it and we sort of started working on it again. And it didn't really matter it had taken that long to do it. Um, the vocal the high vocal in it is like really strained to the point where they offered a personality that wasn't in the original draft. Um, to some extent just keeping those things always on the ongoing thing mm. and not panicking about the fact that you don't know how to resolve them, sooner or later your subconscious resolves them, you know, like the I, I'm a great believer in the bicameral thing of left brain and right brain and that your subconscious brain is always working on things that your conscious brain can't quite understand and that instinctively you'll know when it's right so um, it just seems to be an ongoing thing you know, I'd mm. like to think that perhaps you know four or five days before I spring my mortal coil I might finish them all probably I'll die with some of them still on the boil or I haven't quite worked out what's wrong with them or I've forgotten about them or it might also be that, that I can't quite get the arrangement for them because I can't quite play the string part mm. or something like that mm. or there might be some other, other reason as to why um, for example a song called brand new start that i wrote in 1999 i finally managed to get the drum part right uh about six months ago like every time i tried to get the drums right at the end i could never get the swing for it yeah or i could never get it in time because i put the guitar part down first at the end and i, I, I listened to all the versions that i'd tried of that song and i just couldn't get the end part right and finally I managed to, like, you know, again, I used the same principle of the guitar was put down first at that point, but finally the guitar track at the end of it had the correct timing to be able to put the drum pattern in. It's like a Mm. trotting rhythm at the end, so Mm. it's, um... It sort of finally got there, and I thought, God, that's taken a while, but essentially when that song comes out, nobody's going to know that it's been... If they look at the book, they can see it's listed in the songs written in 1999. Yeah. Um... But again, it just took that long to do it. There were other songs that came out. There's always more songs written than, than can be put on a record, mm. especially if you're only meant to make one every year or every two years. That's, you know, what, 45 minutes for a year's worth of writing. Yeah, there's always yeah. going to be way more that you'll have. Yeah. And to some extent, it doesn't matter as long as they sort of come out in the end. Or um, I mean, I have a great archive of material. There's, mm. a, there's an incredible amount of stuff that is never released.
0: How did you... Um how can you describe your sort of process of moving across the instruments in terms of learning them and and oh. and then you're you're a sort of a collector of instruments really too uh, that's because you can play them or you teach yeah. yourself to play them like what was the what what was at least to begin with what were the graduated steps so you get a guitar peter's oh. got a drum kit oh. you you're bashing things out and then you get electricity oh. but what else what else comes into the fold early on for oh. you in terms of your either you know structured learning okay. or just um picking up on the fly
1: okay so th- first of all was the guitar and that was like a, a year's worth of lessons and theory and stuff like that and how to um correctly hold chords and stuff mm. like that you know uh, and after about a year of playing guitar i guess after maybe six months i got an electric guitar after about a year of that i started learning piano and i and i learned Chord triads and Neil Young piano music mm. and stuff like that. And sit down and play See the Sky About Terrain, just using yeah. chord triads and things like that. Um, what a song. Yeah, really, really, I mean, wonderfully simple song, but really mm. great to learn. And my girlfriend at the time um, played classical piano, so she would teach me finger scales and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, especially for for someone like sort of you know the the Neil Young Badfinger era of, of the seventies, most guitarists in those days did know how to play the piano. Yes. You went from one to the other, so it seemed like a, a really good idea to learn that. Um, from there, I did. I just concentrated on those instruments, um, mainly guitar though, in a way. But I always kept up piano, and whenever I found a piano, I would sit down and work out things on it and and work out where the chords were is
0: it on after the gold rush there's that story that Neil Young just gets Nils Lofgren to play and Uh. he he basically says in the studio I don't know how to play the piano and he's Uh, like that's uh, right like uh, uh. I wondered how you know just in line with what you're saying about guitarists in that era being able to play the piano in some sort of form I wonder how influential stories like that were
1: I'm sure they were, and mm. also it's like, it's, um, especially if you start on an acoustic guitar, mm. uh, in the days before guitar tuners, you had to play the E, the A, That's the right. G, yeah, the G, yeah, the tr- tr- yeah. the guitar. So yeah. um, also... There's pl- a relationship that, yeah, happening. Playing an moment. E flat yeah, yeah. chord, or if, you, if you play an E flat and a movable bar chord of C, mm. you need to have very good fingers to be able to do that, but playing an E flat on the piano is relatively easy. So the whole thing of, oh, I can't play that uh, on the guitar, but I can play that on the piano... And all, I mean, I love the sound of acoustic instruments as well as electric instruments, and and learning acoustic guitar first and acoustic piano first um, is a really good thing, because when you electrify them, they become different again. Uh, It took me a long time to play an instrument like drums. I didn't start playing drums until I I bought my first drum kit in maybe the year 2000. Right. Um, I would always, like, tap along on counts couch or something like that. Um, But I, I got... Some lessons from Marcus Acher, the songwriter from the Notice, who he's actually a swing drummer and his dad plays Dixieland Jazz in right. Bavaria. And he taught me basically the rudiments of drumming, or you know, just over coffee and, and a, a beer kind of thing. Um, and then from there, I bought my own drum kit. And, and uh, I like playing on the und, zwei, I drei, und on the und accents, like mm. I play more like that. Um, something like violin. That was an that was earlier accident where in the nocturnal projections I, I said to Brett Jones one day, oh, I'd really like to play the violin. He said, why don't you get one then? And and I managed to uh, cobble together 75 bucks and bought this violin off Mr Zetwitz and yeah. Zetwitz violin makers on Cairo. And he, he was dying of cancer and... and, and he gave me a really good violin uh, because he liked my enthusiasm, but I was so naive that I didn't know that you needed to put rosin on the bow, and I bought mm. a brand-new bow and, a, and a, an old violin, and the pegs were different from each other, but it, it had a really good sound. And then I took it back and said, It doesn't work. And <laughs> I, I, like, I was trying to play, it, and he said, Well, and he got a bow and put some rosin on it and said, Yes, it does, and I suddenly realised that that's how <laughs> a violin worked. Other than that, I didn't really know how it worked. Mm. So I, I got a few pointers on how to hold it, um correctly under the channel and stuff like that and from there i I learned that myself and it was the same with the cello i just like bought a cello and and started like sausaging away on it you know like (laughs) uh, um again the only reason i did that was because i didn't know anybody who played those instruments and Mm. i wanted to use them as as textures yeah textures you know like more in the leonard cohen way Mm. of lots of long bows and nothing Mm. too fancy Mm. um but again, that, that whole make your own fun, do your own thing. If you're from Taranaki, you have to work out how to do something in a small town. So yeah. more, more that kind of attitude, just been adding one on to the other. Um, yeah. Something like, say, I, I found the, the zither that we used on East Meets West, or a bed of bees, was a thing I found in a, a junk mart. And it's basically a thing where it's got like, on the left-hand side, it has four chords two octaves of white notes and you can play stuff in the key of C for it so all those sort of things I would just add more mm. more on as it went through just because I was interested in different textures and especially with TKP we, we use a lot of instruments um that we couldn't play particularly well, but we didn't want to play virtuosos on them. We just wanted to have that instrument in there, play a little bit of that. Then...
0: Experimentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and rather than hire somebody to do it, which was out of the question. Yeah. It was like you buy one in a junk mart and play it yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these bands, this kind of punishment, nocturnal projections, they, they happen, They have you have records out, but ahead of that, you play in bands through school. Yeah. Um, you and Peter are playing bands for a decade or so. And I was going to say, when does it sort of feel like it's a viable thing to do? But I recognise that's a loaded question because arguably your book says that, you know, as a songwriter and a musician, it's kind of always been viable to yeah. you and then never been, you know, viable in the financially lucrative sort of sense. Yeah. You've, you've you've toiled away at it and had jobs on the side. But yeah. What what crystallizes for you that this is just something you're going to do forever? Do you did you um, ha, do you have a, like a eureka type moment of like this is the right thing for me to be doing?
1: No, nah, well, always almost like a blind man with a long stick, like just continuing to do it because it was the thrill to mm. do it. I, the, the, I never thought about why I was motivated to do it. It's like walking down the street; you're just leaning forward, going. So the. the the, the, of, <laughs> the little, scenery
0: changes enough for yeah, it to yes, stay yeah.
1: interesting. And the fact that you still keep mm. wanting to do that journey, <laughs> yeah. you're still convinced that it's a good idea to do because it's interesting. It, mm. it captivates your imagination. It creates uh, interest in your subconscious mind where you pick up an instrument and try and find a melody on it. Or, or I mean, I have the embarrassing thing of... Um, I quite often used to walk along singing to myself in the days before <laughs> iPods and Walkmans. You know, yeah, like, yeah. So the music's always been very much inside of me coming out um, I remember reading in Roger Shepherd's book when I was sleeving records and flying down to sort mm. so that I could drink their coffee and and, and help them out and um, was living around the corner from where the offices were apparently I used to hum all the time like, and it drove Roger nuts I mean we're actually going to see Hamish on play tonight and he's forgiven me for it years later but I wasn't aware of the fact that I was humming in the office, yeah. it's more than music's always been inside of me, it just sort of pours out, you know, yeah, being yeah. a receiver but I was mortified when they sort of moved me to the next room. But apparently, I just hummed louder. I guess I, I uh, or at least what it says in the book. But you know, again, that that whole thing of, um, I think it's the same with a lot of those flying nun artists. That yeah. It for the long term. Yeah. They're all music nuts, man. That they love buying records. Yeah. And they just wanted to make music that was similar to the stuff that they loved because it was good for their soul. You know, mm. that that whole New Zealand explosion, I think, has been through. An appreciation of good quality music where people have tried to mirror that given the limitations of the recording quality yeah. how good they were as musicians um, and it's amazing what's come out of that you know New Zealand was put on the map by that like uh, in a way that it was never never done before it kind of like sneaked out I mean uh, and it was great to be part of that I think, think that's kind of like the the lost 1960s baby boomers mm. finally managed to come out the other end of the hole in way. Mm.
0: It's, I mean it's it is fascinating the reach of these kind of I guess small things like yeah. just these just these people many of them your peers one way or another in New Zealand that have reached far corners yeah, yeah. you know you you obviously and we'll talk about this go out and actually go places but for a lot of others it's the music that's gone out and gone yeah. places you know I mean even you know what you you've your brother's music is sort of Amanda Palmer f- becomes yeah, obsessed just really with, helpful it. Of yeah, and, him back and on exactly, the yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, she, she yeah. She she really kind of gives him a big ah. a big lift.
1: And ah. it was great that she did. Yeah, 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 Peter had said he was actually at the point where he said, "I've done all I wanted to do," and he he sort of wouldn't do it anymore. He said, "I I've said everything I wanted to say," mm. but her attention kind of like. um and hounding and hounding him down in New Plymouth to find him and yeah meet him, amazing kind of uh, got him back into it like yeah um, well
0: because yeah I guess like uh, he w- is one of many that could feel forgotten like e- e- even yeah. if he'd, even if he'd felt he'd made his own piece yeah. with what he's doing it's very easy to be forgotten in New Zealand right absolutely <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah like everything is last news news in a way and yeah. there's so many bands coming up mm. and there's so m- there will always be people wanting to climb onto the bandwagon. And, and well, not the bandwagon, but the, the industry, <laughs> yeah. because something that I can understand that, but mm. it's very easy to become last year's news. And when you become last year's news, it takes a mountain to become this year's news again. You mm. know, once people have decided you're an old codger, it's very, very difficult to get them to change their mind. Mm. Um, so that was great that she persisted in, in, in getting them interested in doing it again. Um, it, it's kind of. Well, those early Flying Nun records, they went out in really small quantities. I mean, the original issue of Beard of Bees was 500.
2: Yeah.
1: And they'd got maybe 200, 300 in New Zealand, 200 for the rest of the world. Like, people like Byron Coley and Jimmy Johnson, Gerard Cosley liked New Zealand music and Mm. they wrote about them um, in fanzines and magazines and stuff like that. And it got out that way. Like, I mean, we'd sit back in in Auckland and read these things like, gee Byron Coley doesn't seem to use <laughs> really very really long words and everything's abbreviated but um, th- that was just enough to get it over the hump yeah, you know? and, yeah. and then when you'd be touring you'd, 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 you'd go to some guy's house in Germany and he would bring out all these New Zealand records that he had and, mm. and he'd, he'd have gotten them through Flying Nun distributed through Normal uh, initially in Germany and, and, and they would have gone through there or, or the guy would tell you, I bought this in, in Florence in Italy and it would be a copy of b of Bees which you've screen printed the covers for in your own house and, and we sold to Flying Nun for $7 and they put a small markup on and we got the, back the cost of pressing it 500 albums but mm. how did it end up in Florence? And even then it would be dragged to Stuttgart and the guy would bring mm. it out and show it to you and be really proud of it. You know? So it's like someone like, say... Ananis Nin, the the writer, her Mm. her books were in really small quantities, two or three hundred pressings hand done and somehow she made a career out of that so I I guess it's just, again you you think, well I'm really glad that happened but I wouldn't have thought it would have it's very easy for 500 records to be totally unnoticed Um, I think probably the only thing that saved it in a way was that for the New Zealand thing the overall quality was really good most of the things that came out of a good enough quality for people who think, oh, New Zealand seems to have this amazing blend of American and English-influenced music from the radio yeah. from the 60s. And the, the people thought the quality was high enough to pay attention to it, and that got everything above the fence where people yeah. could see it, you know? If it would have just been one or two bands, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah, and then, I guess, linked to that, there's this great sort of, series of of stories about particular characters and and the consistency of their work. So yeah. you know, there's there's you and Peter and the things that you've done together and alone, and that's a whole journey. A whole oh. whole journey. There's Shane Carter and oh. you know, suddenly there's four bands attached to him and same yeah. with Chris yeah, the Knox. Double and, were amazing. Yeah, um, and same but, with Chris Knox. And 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 if people are discovering them,
1: oh. Well the, the Kilgar brothers. I mean, yeah, cleaning it yeah. in. All of the the great unwashed yeah, and the, the solo stuff, yeah, yeah that's what I'm yeah. Robert Scott as well, yeah, performing the bats after yeah. The clean... yeah, um, that's right. So it's all these, all this, a, a
0: very um, interesting yeah. sort of set of family trees going yeah, yeah. on, yeah, yeah, and that's, and I very mean, high
1: quality stuff, yeah yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, like for me at my age, I mean, you know, all of that stuff had happened before I discovered it, you know, yeah. like, but getting to. For me, it was getting to, like, late-period chills and Verlaines, uh-huh. like when they'd basically reformed uh-huh. Chris Knox, the sort of middle-to-end of his solo uh-huh. stuff. And, um, you know, uh, what else? One or two other things. And then from there, you go backwards. Like, you uh-huh. go, you know, and you start uh-huh. seeing this rich catalogue of uh-huh. So probably, like, second or if not third really probably third wave of Flying Nun releases in
1: a way. Yeah, I mean, think things always got sort of added on to. Like, mm. I mean, I guess I was lucky that I saw a lot of the original stuff. Like, I always thought that the um, Alec Bathgate was really important yeah. in the Tall Doors for his sense of melody was something yes. that Chris didn't have, and the yeah. music that Chris could write the lyrics to that Alec gave him uh, was really very high quality. You know, like the, 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 as a guitar player, Alec Bathgate's mm. a pretty good guitar player. Yeah. Um, seeing martin ball and and terry moore playing with rachel phillips and martin phillips with the chills at the rumble bar that was really amazing i mean they they played songs like wet blanket at at, at that game yeah took a long time before they recorded it but it was just undeniably good i mean um martin ball is a drummer he he played the older as well so he played in a really melodic way yeah similar to what robert key plays i mean robert key plays in a really Mm. melodic way but it's just when you, when you saw a band like that you knew it was really really special you were like, wow you
0: know? but what you're describing is is falls into that wonderful cliche that a band is like a marriage and like yeah. particularly I think like looking at things like tall dwarfs yeah. there you've got two people that complement one another yeah, yeah. You know, and really different people too, that's right, right? Yeah. And, and and but not just their personalities musically different with enough with enough commonalities to like one another yeah. and, and and have a have a quest, you know, like have, right. a, have a path they're seeking out. But, right. but um, you know, they, they, they kind of um, prop each other up when needed. And,
1: yeah. and, and th- those guys were friends, you know, yeah. like, and, and they'd been through bands together and stuff yeah. like, where, where, you know, guitar, bass, drums, organ, all that sort of stuff. Mm. But the very fact that just those two guys together mm. making music, primarily initially around Alex Melodies, yeah. great stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, the... Um, and, and Chris getting a small money from a small inheritance to buy a 4-track mm. uh, where they could record it themselves. And he was also really generous that he lent the 4-track to other people and, mm. and managed to make other recordings that wouldn't have been possible other than using that machine. Mm. I mean, Doug Hood was also a good live engineer and he would use a live sound PA to record the music in stereo onto two tracks of 4-track the mm. and then add the vocals to it and maybe a few overdubs. You know, it's all done on an absolute shoestring, mm. and all by people that actually really loved music primarily and just wanted good music to exist. You know, yeah. it's like a sort of brotherhood or family of it in a way. I mean, I guess there's always the uh, the odd, hairy cousin here and there, but to some extent, there was a lot of inner support for it. You know, yeah. it, it wouldn't have happened if Chris Knox hadn't. If he'd been selfish with his full track and said it's only for me, yeah, how many songs wouldn't have come out? You know, yeah, it was pretty cool that he did that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, any for any scene to emerge, uh. it it has its, I guess, figurehead people like that, doesn't uh, it? It needs uh. one or two people that are either sharing the mic or pointing the spotlight on other people, not just themselves. Yeah, and that's yeah. How I it mean, scene
1: someone like Martin Fornits was also really great and that when the chills went overseas he, he would say things like we're only the tip of the iceberg there's loads of other stuff like he was flying flags yeah yeah he, he would promote the other flying yeah. nun bands and the other Dunedin bands um, yeah give the opportunity so in, in a way it's lucky that um, that there was that kind of large um, family of it and that that everyone wanted the other music to also be known it, it wasn't that cutthroat I mean isn't it in business, the first thing you meant to do is to get rid of your competitors, so that yeah. your business is better, you know, yeah. or it makes more money because there's less competition. Which fine, none the opposite to that in ways with regards to how the artists treated themselves. with mm. It's really great. Mm.
0: And so, through all of this and around, roughly around this time, you must be taking the first tentative steps towards establishing yourself as. Or establishing the band, the Cake Kitchen. How does the because how does the band form like and and what's the um, decision behind the original band? Uh, you and Peter go yeah, your separate ways. You've yeah. played together for ages. You decide to do different things.
1: Um, it's kind of like an like, amalgamation of things, I suppose. Like this kind of punishment had about close to a year where it didn't do anything, and Peter decided he was going to retire from music and didn't want to do anything at yeah. all, and didn't do anything for about a year. Um, and in that year, maybe I'd written about 20 songs. I was just getting on writing songs. And I um, worked washing dishes four nights a week for about six months to get the money to buy my own Ford train. God, that was a terrible mm-hmm. thing. Um, I must have washed a million plates, man. But at the end of the night, you got the soup pots with all the burnt yeah, onions yeah. on the side. Uh, and then Peter had a change of heart and came up to Auckland and said he, he'd gone down to Dunedin and kind of like, liked it down there did Randolph's Going Home with Shane which is a great record yeah and kind of like wanted to get back on the horse again so he kind of convinced me it was a good idea to um uproot myself from Auckland Uh, I went down there with my girlfriend and we rented a house where we all lived together I bought the four track down um we tried to sort of put it back together back there um in Dunedin after that time but um, he only really wanted to work on stuff that was new, like all the 20 songs that i would written were all, there was either something wrong with them or I didn't like them or whatever it would be, so I ended up with this material that I had no home for, which I figured that he kind of hated. It not okay. but anyway, we were working on new material, so we just kept going forward. But then when we were going to mix the last TKP record, he offered to help me mix down my stuff as well, which was great. I was really surprised. So I thought you hate that stuff, you never wanted to have any of it on any of the records anyway he helped me mix it down and so I had this thing uh, which I had to a solo album in a way which wasn't really my intention but uh, Mm. since I'd kept writing I had these songs and I released about 9 of them Like um, there's another 11 or 12 which um, never got released but some of them I've actually been working on recently and I'll play some of them uh, tomorrow Mm. Uh, some of the piano ones especially it was impossible for me to get a a piano song in this kind of punishment for some reason, it just wasn't yeah. allowed. Um, so, those ones have been interesting to resurrect. But the uh, so Roger Shepard said he'd released the album, um, which again really surprised me. I thought, wow, great! So, then I had this album coming out, and I needed to promote it. I thought, well, if you're gonna make 300 copies of this album, I should do something about it. So. I'd been because I was flatting with Craig Mason, um, and I was living with Caroline Stone. Craig had asked me uh, to be in the Sombretones, and and I kind of liked what they were doing. He played me the songs he had; I thought they were good, so I I became a guitarist for that. And Robert was the drummer for that, so I kind of borrowed Robert to do the um, the first show as a two piece cake kitchen, and it sort of evolved from there. Um, There was no really great plan of anything other than. I always thought Robert Key was like one of the best drummers in New Zealand. I loved the way he drummed on the Expendables and I thought I liked the way that every time he played a song he seemed to play less rather than more, it was with most drummers they tend to play more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I liked the way he reduced it and was really happy to work with them. And then uh, we did a tour with the Sombatones and got Rachel King in as a bass player just before we went off on tour. And from there... It was like another working band, like what, say, the Nocturnal Projections was, which was like a band that played, I don't know, 100 shows and released 10 songs and wrote over 150 songs. Mm. Um, This kind of punishment was the opposite of uh, two songwriters that wrote two albums worth of stuff before they did a gig. I mean, Chris Matthews helped now and again, but he wasn't really in it when the first two albums were written. And The Sleepwalker was written in children's hour and they didn't want to release it, so we like the song and said we'd, we'd record it for him and bring it out. Um, so to some extent, the Kate Kitchen was more in the nocturnal projections field of a live band that mm. rehearsed three nights a week, played gigs, went through that whole kind of thing. Um, but I also had the four tracks, so something like Time Flying Backwards has got some songs recorded on the four track and some studio songs. World of Sand has some four track stuff and some eight track stuff. So you had this thing whereby because you were forced to play in the live arena through a pub PA, bass, drums, guitar, vocals, You more it's going to be more like the nocturnal projections in a way because with this kind of punishment, we had the thing of we could just stop the tape recorder and change instruments at any time. There's various points where everything on each track will change within 30 seconds of each other. Mm. So live, you wouldn't have a guy standing there to play a small mandolin overdubs for 15 seconds and then stand there on stage for the rest of the time doing nothing, you know? The, the cut and paste aspect of it... TKP was what made it really different because nobody was really doing that at that point. And you could do that with a 4 track recorder. Um, live with the Cape Kitchen as a three piece band, well, I was more or less forced to be more in that sort of um, live band, the drums are mm. in the same volume, they've got eight mics, the guitar's only got one mic on it, the bass has got a DI, the vocals come through, it's all in stereo. You end up with a similar sort of sound. Um, and that, that lasted for about, I don't know, maybe sort of three years or so, I think the original Cake Kitchen, before I eventually went to England. Um, and then from there I bought another four track. So that, uh, I really like recording more than I like playing live. So I'm more inclined to record something and be able to stop the machine and change instruments mm. or get at my cello and play it like a sausage, you know, or whatever it would be, rather than getting somebody to sit up on stage and yeah. play for 30 seconds. So to some extent, it's always been a, a combination of those two things. Um, so why do you go to England It's just time to... What's the, um, what,
0: you know, what's the... I mean, the book starts with you going yeah. here, really. But what's...
1: I felt like going on a big adventure, and and my my relationship had broken up, and I was feeling sorry for myself, and because my grandfather was English, I could work there, and I could get English patriarchy, Uh so I figured that was kind of like, I'll go off on a big adventure. Pressing the restart button. Yeah, it it wasn't a thing of, I'm going to go off and become famous or anything like that, it was more like to go off on a big adventure. Um, And
0: see if you could do what you were doing here, there, because... I figured I could, but... Just because that's what you did. Yeah, Yeah, I figured I
1: would do the same thing no matter where I was. Um, I didn't realise it would be 20 times harder to do it there because you didn't have any contacts (laughs) and you didn't have any equipment, so you Mm. had to get everything again. But it was more just like an idiot in search of adventure in a way. Like, I mean, (laughs) the very fact that I didn't even really research anything about London much until I got there was um, a real eye-opener because suddenly when the taxi driver asked me whereabouts in London I wanted to go to, I didn't really have an answer. You know, I hadn't thought mm. that far through. I'd maybe four addresses of people that I knew of somebody in London, but as an Aucklander, you had no idea the size of London and no idea what it was actually like to be there. So that was like a real shock that the, the even worse, I only had about enough money for maybe three weeks and then I'd be broke, so I, I was forced to... Wander around the streets looking for a job in a bar until eventually I found mine, It took maybe 50 or 60 no's before I got a yes, but it was it was only I only barely survived there, you know. So, in a way, it was lucky for me that I managed to get a job and find a way to live there because researching it, I, I went there totally naive like the, mm. the, the greenest greenhorn you could possibly find. <laughs> like, the, um, and when, when you get there. It's almost impossible to understand what it is you know like you, you were, I, I stayed in Sloan Square near Victoria station mm. but wandering around the street there were no landmarks there was everything looked totally weird you know? it's kind of like the um, the English were very unfriendly as well I suppose um, my colonial accent and, and the very fact that they are a relatively xenophobic nation was a little bit of a, um, a shock as well. Mm. But again it was just like idiot in search of adventure buying a ticket without really knowing what would happen once you got off the plane.
0: Did how quickly did or did it ever turn that idiot in search of adventure when, oh my god, I've made a huge mistake? Um
1: probably, fi- probably when the guy asked me where about some and <laughs> yeah, I wanted yeah. to go and I didn't know. That, no, but that, that I mean, was, that, but I mean with some like
0: even if slightly some kind of cause for action, like I need to go back home or this is Uh, not going to work. Was there ever, you know, that or did you just...
1: No, there wasn't, but maybe there should have been. But the the thing is that um, (laughs) I'm a really independent person and I would never in my life ask mum for some money to come home. And that the. I mean, also I could busk, I could play guitar so I could go down to the tube station and play for money. So there Mm. was always some way to at least get something to eat. Mm. Um... But the thing was it was just suddenly the going got a lot harder so you had to be a lot more clever and, and just to have a place to stay took all the effort that it possibly could take just to be able to go to sleep at night somewhere cool. that wasn't a yeah. doorway or, or a cemetery. And and in that way, I mean that was good for me because to some extent
2: uh,
1: whatever I hadn't worked out with regards to life and my own personality making it difficult for me and things that I thought that were totally wrong about how life was and should be. All those things had to be re-evaluated the moment I hit London and couldn't couldn't go on the dole, uh, had to make my own way. That was really um, an incredibly good lesson, a hard mm. one to learn, and probably if I'd have thought, do I really want to learn that lesson? I may not have actually... Uh, Taken the plunge, it was more because I was stupid enough to just yeah. do it. Suddenly I had to grow up, and then that was a great thing to happen. I mean, it, I didn't grow up instantly, I was still as pig headed as I was about some things, but it was the starting point. You know, from there, if you can feed and clothe yourself and put a roof over your head, then you have the right to complain or have an opinion, but if you can't do that, If you're, you're, then in a way, you're not valid, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of like a big growing up for me, in a way. I mean, it's amazing in some ways that I survived and I could have easily fallen off the globe for good. Mm. But the thing is, you just certain increments, you know? Okay, at the end of the day, I would like to have a place to stay. Somebody says if you break into a council estate and change a lot, you can stay there. So I'll walk around the council estates and have a look and see if there's anywhere <laughs> that I can find. Oh, that, those places don't have any curtains in them. And when you um, climb through the window, all of the mail is inside saying that they haven't paid rent for six months. So if you change lock lot, you can stay there. OK, change lock, see what happens. Um, don't answer the door. Have a look through the people. And if, if it's uh, the postman or the gasman, don't open the door suddenly you could find a place to live. So from there, um, I had a lot of jobs in bars and stuff like that. I'd done some small bar course in New Zealand to be um, useful in a bar, but, but the money was terrible. But just all those things, you just you had to do it to live. Mm. And that, that was a great education. I mean, better to learn... The hard way, I suppose, and not learn at all. But I, I could have done it so much easier if I hadn't been, <laughs> if I'd have been more well prepared and knowing what was going to happen. Mm. But there's no way of knowing, you know. You, when you arrive there, that's when you suddenly realise what the the game is, and you're on that board. So if you've only got a small amount of money before you and you're flying there and you're guilty forty, you'll be out in the street. Yeah. you have to do something. You ha- you have to um, up your game to the point of being able to look after yourself, you
0: know? Well, when does England come, you know, so when does it become actually viable, like when does it make sense that you're there?
1: It never really did, because I mean, I, the, the, I didn't know about the winding up people being more of a sport than football in England, mm. and uh, I was prime praying for being wound up all the time, so I had something like 14 jobs in the first year or so and mostly fired from them or from the more I quit you know because I didn't like way they treated me um but playing in the underground and busking and also I managed to license some of the material and get an advance for it and stuff like that but it was a really terrible way to live I mean I lost a real lot of weight I was pasty white after about six months um I became even more paranoid than I was before I got there. of such a thing as possible, but again, all those things you just had to keep going. There was no—I never really, th- I, to be honest, I never really thought about asking for the money home and abandoning it. Mm. It was more, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. You just like walking down the street. I just kept walking down the street, working out whatever I had to do to survive. But um, wow, so so some of the some of the things were terrible there. You know, like I mean, yeah. I, I lived in Brixton, which was like. 99 percent black people and and really large poll tax area um because the courts were all blocked by poll tax cases you could squat there for a year before the cops would come around and throw you out so that was a way to live but i had no idea that's what how i would live when i went to England. i thought (laughs) i'll get a job in a bar and a nice flat somewhere and nice record label but as it was um my final amount of money, I sent out like 30 press kits to various record labels yeah. that I got the addresses off of magazines or other things like that. Maybe half of them, the addresses were wrong. Yeah. But um, I've only got three replies out of those 30 things with a press release and a tape. And uh, one from 4AD said they didn't listen to stuff that wasn't submitted by a publisher. Because I, didn't know, I didn't even know what a publisher was, actually. Uh, EMI in Charing Cross Road, I walked past them, I, oh, I sent them something, they said, no, thank you. Probably thought absolute rubbish, but um, Ken Coe came from Homestead and said you'd have to be an idiot not to want to release this stuff. I, I love this <laughs> stuff. Um, you didn't put a phone number on you on your uh, thing, but I'd like to talk to you on the phone. Blah, blah, blah. And and I managed to get a deal with Homestead USA just by sending the stuff out. But totally naive, Dreamhorn that mailed it. You know, I mean, if I if I hadn't chosen that label I, out of the thirty that I picked, God knows what would have happened. You know, but again, it's just like you do all these things and one thing sticks and Hope Super were a big label they, mm. they, they were based in New York they had really aggressive exporting for Europe as well um, it worked, you know, the, the Ken liked the band so much he organised our first American tour and Tim Adams from Ajax also helped with that again it was just enough to get you on, on, on board but mm. n- not through any great intelligence on my part and not through any good business acumen either just through luck really <laughs> or, or I guess he could see something in the material that he liked. Yeah. And Kim Katkin's taste was fairly left to centre. I mean, he, he liked bands like Cibito and stuff like that as well, which are relatively low fi So just a matter of luck, you know. I often wonder what would happen if I hadn't sent that. Um,
0: I, I, I've often, when I listen to The Cake Kitchen, I kind of think of you as almost like a reverse or an inverse Steely Dan. In that, and and what I just realised is I was thinking about whether I would say that to you directly or not, is that the Mountain Goats did that great cover of Steely Dan's song, uh-huh. FM, which uh, maybe and maybe John is a similar kind of person too, in that you would never line your music up and go, oh, that sounds like Steely Dan, uh-huh. that even sounds like that guy would have listened to Steely uh-huh. Dan, but just started off as a band, and then it became about... It really became about the central vision of the songwriter, uh-huh. or in their case, songwriters, and but where they would bring in world class studio uh-huh. musicians uh-huh. to fulfil their vision. Uh-huh. You would just make it work. You would uh-huh. often uh-huh. use yourself, and uh-huh. then, it's then like who? Are, my and get, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so it's the complete opposite uh-huh. approach to Steely Dan, but uh-huh. in a way, you're, you've built a similar world. It's all—it's all geared around you having a a distinct vision for. The songs uh-huh. and and knowing that you need a vehicle for the songs.
1: Yeah, I suppose it, I mean I wouldn't have thought that was a similarity. So you surprised me on that one, Simon. But um, yeah, there, there a that thing of it's like mo- it's more just the way my mind works. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> uh, the most operandi is the song seems to mm. need this, so I guess we need to do this to get that or whatever it would be. Um, I mean, I would think that their chord vocabulary is probably more advanced than mine and they probably know the names of most of the chords that they play, With some of them <laughs> I still don't know what they're actually called. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably they have a little bit more training than, than sure. I have. Um,
0: but there's a sort of a, an almost, an, I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but uh, a sort of solipsistic approach to we're going to do this uh, because we believe in ourselves. Yeah, I've always had a really large amount in the music. of
1: self-belief, even yeah. if it's uh, wrongly based or naive. I've never been um intelligent enough to psychoanalyse myself into not believing in myself you know like i mean that if you believe in yourself subconsciously you you never get the the black dog of depression telling you graham you're a waste of time uh all (laughs) your songs are terrible the only reason you've made is because you got long legs, you know, whatever it would be. But <laughs> like, uh, I've never thought like that. Yeah, I, I'm lucky that I hadn't. It, it, that sort of thinking can totally undo what what you mm. stand for and what you do. If anything, my brother's much more likely to think like that. I've never. He's always had various points where he's decided. I've done said all I wanted to say, I'm going to stop, whatever it be, But I've never thought like that. I've always just sort of been this kind of like... It's a
0: tap that you've turned on and you're not interested in
1: turning it off. I've never thought about Mm. turning it off because it's too interesting to see what comes out of it. It's the naivety in me or the greenhorn. That is my biggest asset for the fact that I'm mm. Really interested in what that melody could mm. be I'm really, I don't mind Writing seven verses for little when well, I only use Two, because I might be able to get a good Combination between the fifth one and the second One, like, mm. and rather than thinking I've, I've written enough words, it must be enough It's always, you just keep pumping at it It's like um Like, like scratching fleas You know, I'm ever scratching the <laughs> fleas because The fleas always seem to be there, I've never yeah. thought about Why I did that Or I've never thought about oh, it's useless scratching these leaves because you'll just itch again, whatever it would be. The, the, that part of my personality has probably been my saving grace mm. for the longevity that i kept in it because it's always just seemed the most interesting thing to do. Like, I mean, I, I like listening to records, I like reading books, I like writing songs. Mm. Um, in that way, it's been a hell of a long adventure, but the motivation has just been basically because that seemed an interesting thing to do. You know? And you
0: can line up the cake kitchen records and if you can't, if you played them to someone blind they might not be able to guess the timeline they might no, they, they, wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they probably yeah. wouldn't oh. but they certainly would be able to tell it was the same act you yeah, know they, they, yeah. they, they have a sound oh. they oh. You, you are trying to sound like yourself and like the cake kitchen oh. like they they and it is and and again it's a, it's a forced comparison but that's probably what i'm saying when i'm like you're like a kind of kitchen sink steely dan it's like every steely dan record <laughs> poor man's steely dan. no not a poor man's but well well i guess royalty wise in comparison yeah, yeah, yeah. sure but it's uh, just a different approach
1: like mm, but you, one. yeah yeah
0: just a different <laughs> but you know you, every steely dan record sounds like a steely dan record you there's no mistaking it
1: well i mean but- i suppose there's that imprint on it you no know, and also if you look at this kind of punishment musically mm. something like say um Parrot Island off, come Before the Storm, yeah. it's really obvious that the person who was responsible for a lot of the musicality of this kind of punishment, it's the same imprint, you know, I'm using yep. the same
2: mm.
1: major, minor suspended fourth, mm. major seventh type things mm. um, because that's the way that I like those things to sound um, so that's a very deliberate thing, you're creating a sound world by um, doing that and strangely enough, what you, what you leave out of it is equally as important as what you put in it. The space between the notes is equally as valid as the notes themselves, if anything, more. When you put a whole barrage of notes together, it becomes a continuous... Whereas when you use space and you use um, pauses, even in conversation when one Mm. pauses and then says... Book him, Daryl. You have this much better effect than if you book him down. You no, know, yeah. that whole thing, it's a conscious thing to make that impression because mm. when I write stuff, I'm not even necessarily writing about my own life. I'm writing about the story I want to tell or the impression I want to make. You know, a lot of my songs aren't about me, they're about situations yeah. that, I, that I see or. Yeah, there's a real observer's eye thing going on with your lyrics. Which makes it easier. If I had to write all the songs about myself, it would get pretty... I went to the dairy, I came back, the car had a flat Mm. tyre, the cat was sick on the floor, there was a dead rat this morning outside, like Mm. whatever it would be. The fact that you're writing from other sources and that you you think, okay, the sentence... um, When I put the sentence together and I look at it, it makes me feel that. So I'm going to use that sentence to make my audience feel that Mm. and i'm going to add that sentence to make a story whereby at the end of these 20 lines that i have i may not even consciously know what Mm -hmm. they're about but i want to make this and i I read them and i think oh that makes me feel scared or that makes me feel whatever it would be and use that as a way to write so i'm writing not uh, i mean some songs i've written directly out of life but mostly i'm writing to give the impression of things I, i want to make these stories where people will think that I know exactly what they're about and mm. why don't. I don't mm. I'm painting no totally they're yeah. very
0: very open and, and very there's something very interesting about like um, this observational approach is very non-judgmental you know, yeah very, they're, they're, they're,
1: I don't really want to judge people I, no. I, don't, want to, I don't want to They're not moralistic, good and they're, they're not moralistic they're, tales yeah. they're
0: just little um, pictures with yeah, words it's cinematic in yeah. a way yeah, 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 they're, yeah, they're very not, much like, so um,
1: Without necessarily knowing what they're about. I mean, mm. the, the well, impressionistic. Yeah, yeah, I, I look at those things on a piece of paper because essentially when you're writing songs, you, you, I get the melody first. Like, you know, say something like Mother and Child Reunion by Paul Simon. Yeah. None of the original lyrics he used to get that melody are in the song. He yeah. just used them as a vehicle to get the. Da, 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 yeah. And then he eventually made it into something. The, uh, that's the way that I write. I, I just use these things to get melodies. And then I, the words themselves, will, 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 you'll, you'll get these words without thinking about them, and then you'll sit down and think, hmm, that's a really interesting image. What does that make me think of? Well, it makes me think of that, makes me think of that, makes me think of that. The more ambiguous they can be, the better. Mm. Because um, and then someone will come up and tell you, that song of yours, I, my I, I, I life's exactly the same as that, and they'll tell you the story about what you wrote, something about which they relate to but it won't be what you meant at all. It'll be something different, but you've made it ambiguous enough that they can put their life into it. Mm. That's great. Like, I mean, I, I don't profess to know what all my songs are about. You're, um, you
0: mentioned The Kinks, The Fall, yeah. Neil Young, and then just Paul Simon then. Yeah. Um, but who, who are your sort of go-to things you listen to for if not inspiration just enjoyment like who are the who are the outside of those names if any of those count and obviously oh. I, i'm sure the fallen and, and uh yeah i mean we'll, we'll also
1: stuff like say david bowie yeah. over the years yeah lou Reed, developed underground especially um more recently say stuff like uh the um i really like the baby bird stuff done before he had a band Those like first albums that he mm. made in Sheffield on, on a full track just by himself um, I find those really inspirational uh, what else do I, I mean do I have uh, maybe 500 albums a 1000 CPs, mm. maybe 300 singles and I love them all, yeah. like, but uh, each one has somehow influenced me in a way that I don't even really understand um, stuff like Wire, Colin Newman uh, Todd Rundgren um Kevin Ears, uh, Bad Finger, especially Pete Ham's songs. Yeah. yeah, I thought he wrote really great songs. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, I've re- really just kind of, I mean, I've been aware of Bad Finger for uh, most of my life, I suppose, one way or another, but just the last year or so, I've yeah. gone down a real sort of path of actually listening through to all the albums. and, the, uh, and you, those you heard first the, the,
1: the home recordings he
0: yeah, yeah, some of them. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Some of those are really amazing. Yeah, Like the, um, and, and they did, uh, what was really sad about that was that, that they ended up having to record albums really quickly mm. and he had this amazing back catalogue of songs that the band wouldn't use or that he didn't want to use, for some reason they didn't use them mm. and ended up making these album in 10 days which wasn't particularly outstanding and then after he died all of these recordings came up with other songs he did written, which were like fantastic and you think wow why didn't he use that You know, but. Um,
0: I'm surprised. Maybe there, maybe there has been, and I have missed it. But I'm surprised there hasn't been some extensive sort of vinyl reissuing of those first three or four Badfinger albums. Cause no, they're
1: all they all come out again. But
0: yeah. but yeah, they don't seem to be around in any lasting
1: capacity. But um, Steve Steve Rock, the guy who uh, who mastered Time Flying Backwards, actually mastered them all in, in and right. Road and went through and. and um, Things like, say, Tony Visconti's cello arrangement on, on the first one mm. came out particularly well. On um, what's the song of the first album? Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but like that, they were remastered in a really, really good way. Yeah. Um, I guess there's not that much of a market for it, you know. Like no,
0: the, the, no. They, they
1: surfaced and then they <laughs> went out the door again. You know?
0: Yeah, and Apple. Is just fine rejigging Beatles stuff, I suppose. Well, they can make a crust out of that. That's yeah.
1: yeah I, I imagine from from the board of directors' point of view, the Beatles stuff made so much money that they there's no real care need to, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it was kind of cool in a way because the, the albums were getting really, really pricey because they were on Apple and because mm. they hadn't. There was all sorts of um because they got ripped off so badly by Stan Polly the American yeah. lawyer. um, that the stuff wasn't available for a very long time. and eventually it, it came out again. Um, i think it's i think it's that they're like a songwriter's band in a way yeah yeah totally. the, um, but even the demos like the, jo- john lennon was quoted as saying you couldn't believe how good their demos sounded like the, and a lot of that stuff's actually sort of come out again mm. um, either in bootlegs or semi-official type releases so it's sort of finally sort of surfaced after all these years mm. but the, the sad thing was that Ham killed himself through Depression and through realizing that he would never make a cent out of his music because of the deals that his manager had signed. So yeah, it's kind of like,
0: it's a heartbreaking story.
1: 75, he killed himself. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely heartbreaking story, given, I mean, it's always awful, but given the talent involved there. Yeah, it's I mean, he's only
1: 27. Like, I mean, yeah. the, the, the 27, you, you're still really young, you know, to, to, yep. to top yourself at that age is a really sad thing, you know. It's such a, um, a waste of a I'd, lo, I'd love I've loved to have seen him get old and snickety and, and mm. um but then again at least his is shone for a little while you know yeah there's no real there's no duds there
0: it's just a yeah. it's a, it's just a great 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 catalogue of uh, beautiful recordings ah. you know? like really beautiful recordings yeah, I mean,
1: even the live stuff the, the, the yeah. singing in that band was really amazing they were really yeah. good singers like yeah. even in the audience recordings of vocals and always like really really good
0: Mm-mm. um and you mentioned uh, i was just interested in the names you were reeling off then they're all kind of uh you're talking about a bunch of sort of control freak people todd Rundgren,
1: <laughs> colin newman yeah but i mean the, 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 uh, auteur uh, types yeah but the, 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 there's also an incredible amount of spontaneity and mm. stuff i mean because True. he's doing it all himself but when if you're a control freak you're also doing overdubs whereby you just play any old thing onto it and see what it is and then keep it you know like mm. the the um who else can I think of that's in there um obviously the Flying Nun stuff I guess yeah. that's kind of like a, a later thing um things like early Mogwai
2: mm.
1: Mm. um Jonathan Richmond ice cream man
0: yeah I love Jonathan Richmond. Yeah. I got to see him a couple of years ago when I was yeah. in the States and it was I didn't think I'd ever see him because I know he oh, came, came to New too, Zealand yeah, but yeah, yeah. that was before my time living in a big city and yeah. probably before I knew who he was you know even um, and so it was really cool everyone uh, lots of people had told me you get a chance to see a Jonathan Richmond yeah. show go and it really was
1: the, the really last one cool. I saw was in the Geischwein Svanzig in Munster. It's a club that can only maybe hold 100 people and um he would do things like walk totally away from the mic and just yes. sing and play guitar for the people in front. And if you yeah. weren't quite near the front, you couldn't hear what was yeah. going on. And uh, that that club was owned or booked by a guy called uh, Frank Dietrich. And both Frank... When I, when I said to Frank, let's go and talk to Jonathan at the end of the show, he was too scared to go backstage, John, and... and yeah. Jonathan just sent sent out like he gave a mono feed to the sound guy and controlled everything himself. And he he cooked his own food. Him and Tommy
2: yeah
1: uh, ate beans or whatever they were yeah, eating. Yeah. But it was just, it was really great to to see that he was still going. And also he he'd aged in a really good way. His yeah. soul was still the soul of a yeah. young person. Like, yeah, um, yeah. Considering how. Smashed a lot of the 70s people became with drugs and booze yeah. and all the other things. No, to the,
0: everything that's good about him is still intact,
1: yeah, like musically yeah.
0: and yeah, spiritually. Like yeah. He, the he's made it
1: to old age in a really good way,
0: yeah. That sort of innocence or naivety uh, that's part act, part inherent uh, is all there,
1: yeah. So I, I bought uh, um, some piano music. Uh, of uh, a volume of his that finally got published and I was really excited to see that it was in there and it had some of the really old modern song mm. songs in it including Pablo Picasso and the explanation for that is amazing like he writes down Pablo Picasso was just E minor or open string and basically he would just play E minor or not E minor and strum that and sing it and I could never work out how that song actually went. And when I finally read it and looked at it, it's just E minor or nothing. Yeah. And you can play it really easily. <laughs> but it's so simple, you wouldn't have yeah. thought of it. You know? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah.
0: Wow. And so you so you basically are out of New Zealand for close to two decades. Yeah. And um, why do you come back? And, I mean, when you come back, you come back as someone that a whole lot of people don't know, like, in a way. Like, you, you, you yeah. have some some people that probably turn up to your shows and, and have followed you or been aware of you or at least know the backstory but then right. you have younger people that are get told to go along to a cake kitchen show or check Why, out an should album i see
1: that old dude he's probably yeah. got rickets, you know yeah well i mean i guess it's like every 10 years you had to re- renew your audience you know every 10 years the audience is gone and, mm. and and so to be away that long means you sort of lost your audience i suppose in a way at least in new zealand But my audience ended up being in a different place. Some of my largest audiences are Germany and and, um, America. Yeah. So I suppose it was a... Although I didn't particularly want to lose the New Zealand audience, there wasn't enough money to come back and keep it going. And also I had no business deals yet, so there was no-one promoting it, Um, which, again, isn't bitter. Uh, The people who did have deals here would have a hard enough time getting promoted anyway, Mm. so I could understand why nothing much happened. But um, at the end of it, sort of coming back... um, I was working contracts for Rough Trade Germany, like packing out CDs and working for them, like because uh, they were bought by Clive Calder, who I'm uh, Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys, and lots of work there. And most of the staff were like old Polish housewives that would control the CDs and stuff by barcodes rather than English. Yeah. So as an English native speaker, I was useful to them to the point where I could get a work permit there. Um, but eventually, as, as iPods came in and vinyl... And CDs became less popular, the contracts became less, and it, it just sort of got to the point. Living in Germany is, is hard in ways because everything is bureaucratic and more or less forbidden. And I lived right next to the Dutch border where everything is unbureaucratic and allowed. So one was land, and the other was um, nicht land. And to some extent, after that long away, um, I just got to the point where the money was getting low. Um, I'd married a German woman and we'd broken up and I'd had a year where I wasn't in a relationship and then I'd had another girlfriend after that and that kind of broke up after another year, year and a half or something like that. So it just seemed that everything was kind of like falling away. Mm. And I guess I figured with the internet and with the fact that since I had my audience already and it didn't really matter where I lived, I, I yeah, you could be bought a 16-track in, yeah. in the year 2000 and I record on that to this day, so I, I had worked out a way to make records anywhere in the world. And also, I could ship it anywhere in the world, It's like maybe four cubic metres of musical instruments and recording gear and personal stuff, and it, you can put it on pallets and send it anywhere for about the price of a one-way airfare the documentation and the huffing and puffing to get it on the pallets is murder, but once you finally get it somewhere, you can send it anywhere, and all you need is an address to send it to. Then you have to go to that country and find a house other than the address that you sent it to your friend's address by the time it arrives. So it's quite possible to go from place to place. So I figured it was just time to come back to New Zealand. Um, I, I did a... In 2005, I did some shows here just to see what it was like, to see how I would feel. And it was... Um, I I liked being back here. I mean, there were limitations I suppose, but the very fact that as a New Zealander, although I've developed a European accent and my English is not viewed as a Kiwi accent, um, I understood exactly how New Zealand worked, whereas I was still a little bit baffled by how Germany worked Mm. because it's so Germanic and it's thinking. So there's this sort of point of thinking, okay, it doesn't really matter where you live. Um, Wouldn't it be better to live in a place that's actually easier to live in? I mean, the advantages of living in Europe were uh, really good gigs to see all the time. Um, uh, Lots of different countries in relation to each other being very close together. Great train system. You didn't really need to own a car. But I just sort of... It's hard. Yakka living in Germany, it's so Germanic. It's so... I was just like going in there it's just like, this is wrong it's very very blinkered in its thinking you know so say for example somehow the system turned up with a, a Kenny Rogers CD that had the same barcode number as a Cradle <laughs> of Filth CD and and uh, I was an export and there was like these something like i don't know 5000 Kenny Rogers CDs going to a heavy metal shop and I sort of said oh, we can't do this man it's the wrong CD And the barcode is correct how don't we you know so i mean it's strange how the, um, the Cradle of Filth fans were more shocked by Kenny Rogers and Kenny Rogers fans were by Cradle <laughs> of Filth. Like, what is this? Say? And and the, the, um, that whole really blinkered way of thinking, it just sort of wears you out after a while. I mean, I was going to Holland more and more just because I had friends there and because anything goes there. It's sort of like a... Um, Although the Dutch are shy, they're sort of much more liberal. Yeah. There's, there's something about, I think I finally got worn out by Germany. I mean, when I went back there with Nicole after we got married in New Zealand, I didn't intend to be there very long, but it took, from the point of getting married here, something like seven years before I finally came back. So, in some ways, I'm going back there I want to play some shows with Brett Giants under the Cake Kitchen banner. And I'm slightly worried that it might take me seven years to come back. It seems mm. that when you land there, it seems really it's fascinating, yeah. and, and and also um, the business side of it there um, is also much bigger. And you you can they treat you very well when you when you play a gig there. You get great hotel, free drinks all night, really good fees. Um, the people who come to the show will take you out to a club or somewhere interesting afterwards, and the driving distances are way less than American. Like Dusseldorf and Cologne is only half an hour. Dortmund is only an hour from Dusseldorf. Um, it's very, very easy to sort of get seduced by it again, so I'm a little bit worried that I might decide not to come back, but I do have a return ticket. I mean, <laughs> it costs another grand to make that ticket last a year, which isn't a lot to... Um, To lose, And I think we've got about 12 shows so far. We're still adding a few more to them. So it should make a relatively good amount of money. I bought an amp there on eBay. I bought a Fender Twin for €650, which is really good. It's 1,128 New Zealand. So I've got an amp there. Um, I'm taking piano and guitar. Um, Brett's renting an apartment in Berlin for five months. Um, It would be possible to stay there, but I'll just see how I feel. I'll go along with an open mind. And see what it's like to be back in Germany again. I'm sure it will be different. You know, I haven't lived there for eleven years, twelve years maybe. So to some extent, it will have changed again. Mm. I haven't played there for eight years, I so I sort of need to renew my audience again. Now, after ten years, your audience is gone. You have to keep renewing it. Um, but I must admit, I'm really excited about doing it. Like I mean, it's kind of it's. You motivated. sound
0: like you've got itchy feet a little bit. Like being, yeah, yeah. Cause you've been because you because you've finished a significant chapter coming back to Wellington and in, in the writing of the book. That's a significant yeah, yeah. chapter in your life story. Uh-huh. So you've written, edited and, and it's, published it, that. It
1: says, I no longer go on stressful rock and roll tours. Mm, as okay. soon as it comes out, I'm going back on another yeah. one. You know? So I'm yeah. quite tender to, I'm, I'll document each day yeah. you know, as we go <laughs> and see how that works. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that the same crazy, idiotic things will happen. I mean, on rock and roll tours, so many strange things happen. Anything you could think of, no matter mm. how bizarre it might be, will have happened on some rock and roll tour somewhere. Some, <laughs> some, you know, it's yeah. amazing what goes on.
0: Mm. And you've, you, you know, you've said you're always writing songs, but you've been quite concerned with going through the archives.
2: Yeah. So yeah,
0: are I, you I looking to... at a significant archival release or yeah, yeah
1: yeah like that the, uh i wanted to hit berlin airport with a new album of new material finished and uh at least an archival material uh, album more or less finished and also i wanted to remix something through the boneyard which has been the, the worst mix mm. of, out of any of the stuff which is all my own fault for doing um i can't blame anybody other than myself for what's wrong with it but i've also more or less remixed that so the idea was to arrive with a whole pile of material should the uh, business uh, possibilities be favourable mm. to be able to have something that would pay the rent for a while.
0: Right? Yeah, I've got to admit, because the way it's worded in the book yeah. about stomping, I thought, oh, yeah. so is that going to see the light of day in a new... Yeah, yeah like especially even as we mix, sleep, the yeah. it's was
1: really terrible. It started, it's so quiet at the mm. start, the part where the ring hitting the end of the guitar and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and also, I mixed it on a, a set of speakers I bought for 90 bucks at the stereo <laughs> shop in <New> Plymouth. <laughs> and they're to- the frequencies are totally wrong. And Peter Peter borrowed them for an album that he made with a, uh, Anita Anchor. Mm. And I thought, oh, I mean, he, he just grabbed them because I left them in the house. I, I think I hid them under the bed or something like that. And he yeah. found them. Oh, there's the speakers under the bed. And that album has exactly the same equalisation problem (laughs) as Swimming Through the Bonehead because these speakers were so so far south of what What they should be. So, you know, you adjusted everything to that set of speakers. Yeah. And the only way that album sounds good is if you play it through that set of speakers, but probably they've been thrown out by now. (laughs) Um, So that one's always been the one that was the worst. And Mm. to some extent, most of those songs were written in France and they're some some of my best songs. I I had a really great writing period when I was living in France and I, I wrote loads of songs. So I've always sort of felt that one was good songs, but bad, bad recording quality. Um, and so it's always been a... I've always wanted to remix it. And when I found out that the Ampex tapes were not ageing very well and it was either now or never, I kind of like went through it and um, started remixing it maybe a year and a half ago. I, I've more or less finished it, but I, before I came round here, I listened... Uh, I finally managed to burn out a CD of all the mixes which I thought were finished and I think, no, Mr Adrian's lost in his last panic attack the, um, the merged version is very speeded and I've un it and now it's too slow um, and there's a few little things wrong but I think about out of the nine songs maybe seven are about right so I still need to remix two of them but always with that four track stuff it's always a thing of... Um, mixing it, thinking it's perfect, it's perfect, listening to it again, thinking, oh, hang on, you can't hear that line, so you go through and you make that line loud, or adjusting it, mm. it. It takes forever to do it, because it, it's such... Every ounce of quality in it is is hard won, you know? that It's difficult for it to not sound like a quarter-inch tape machine with um, four tracks on it, uh, usually stereo mix and then vocals added. So to some extent, I still need to tweak it slightly a little bit now, remix that song Um, I might remix Harriet Rowe as well that was almost there but some of the Ebo guitar and it's a little bit loud and the vocals are a little bit quiet but it's between a hearing a rabbit it's something I can relatively easily do it's all I've transferred it all to the 16 track and it's given the option if you can if there's a tiny little overdub, you can put it onto another track and <laughs> equalise it differently and the volume is differently. Whereas on a full track mix, you have to change the EQ, whip the volume down, whip it up and stuff like that. So it's much easier to separate it all out. And hopefully by the time I finish that, there'll be somebody who's just dying to yeah, yeah. bring it out. Um, so we what 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 located I'm... all the photographic stuff for the artwork. Uh, original photographs and things like that so it will eventually see the light of day
0: what I'm getting here is that if you were to spontaneously suffer some form of writer's block Uh, you've got enough projects that you'd be working you know like in terms of indulging your passion and hobby for music and 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 Hopefully, earning something from it too. Like, I'd like to think so. Yeah. But I
1: mean, then, then again, and know, then that reg- money, that you know. would
0: regenerate your interest in writing, no doubt. Like, that's Hopefully, the thing. yeah,
1: yeah. And, and also, like, I mean, you've always got to remember that that when you have a new album coming out and it's your new album, mm. it's usually songs that are like a year old, at least <laughs> yes. sometimes a lot older than that. Yeah, For my stuff in particular, since I have so many songs that I don't release, there's always old stuff and new stuff put together. Like, mm. and, and it's good in a way because somehow. A song that you've written five years ago will have a different way of doing it than what you're working on currently. The, the the biggest thing to step over is that the material you're all working on at one point will have a similarity to each other because that's how you're thinking about music at that point. So when you take something from a different time frame, when you think about music in a different way or influenced in a different way... Uh, didn't have a piano to write on on those years so you wrote more songs on guitar or Mm. had a piano to write on and so uh, wrote songs on on piano instead of the guitar. All those things you use as as a combination to try and make the records as interesting as possible and each track as different as possible so that the listener gets an overall view of something that has separate Mm. chapters rather than just the same formula repeated. Um, That makes it slightly harder to become the next big thing but it makes it slightly easier (laughs) to have a longer lifespan because your stuff's different from each other you know
0: you've arguably studiously avoided being the next big
1: thing for a quarter of a century or so now yeah 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 probably (laughs) if I did become the next big thing I would die of uh, uh, shock (laughs) shock or or, of um, partying too hard or or enjoying life suddenly having loads of money or spiritual misdirection (laughs) Yeah, there's, I mean I have a relatively addictive personality So I imagine if I came into a lot of money I would probably become party candidate. You'd come a into a lot bit. of trouble, yeah Yeah, if, if anything, the poverty has been, been one thing That's kept it on the straight and narrow It's funny that, isn't it? It's... Yeah, but again if, it's, if it if it works, it's okay If it's not broken, don't fix it I mean, if, if having to do it the hard way Means that it, it, it keeps you from Going over the top Or, um Getting addicted to something you shouldn't be addicted to, or even being able in that leg to where you can think, "Oh, I might go and do that." I might do that. The the, the poverty of it has been helpful for the realism of it, you know, and and the fact that um, I I mean, none of those flying nun people seem to have ever really made it to the the big money stakes. that they've all got holes in their socks and only one pair of shoes. You know, or maybe two pairs of shoes, but. The, the well it, would, it wouldn't just be wrong
0: it would look wrong if they if if they weren't like that yeah you know that's it's a, it's a lived esthetic isn't it like pretty much
1: the and that's what's made it really grand in my opinion yeah like the very fact that it's been totally a labor of love for the people that have done that has made it really special and to some extent I mean, yeah it's
0: a kind of like a philosophical authenticity about the the flying down hallmarks yeah, as, yeah, mu- yeah, as yeah. much as anything else. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a while back that you were going to write a novel and then you thought you'd pump the memoir out yeah. first. Did finishing that book put you off, right, you know, I know they're two different things, but did it put you off the idea of writing another book? Or, no. Or quite the opposite?
1: Yeah, it, it actually encouraged me to do it. Like yeah. the, the fact of actually seeing one finding Seeing you could do it, yeah, because yeah, it's a real journey. The, yeah, the yeah, yeah. I thought, my God! I mean, when I, when I got the box, the, the promotional yeah. box from Matt Goddies, into to me, I thought, "Wow, there it is!" You know, far out. Uh, no, it's kind of encouraged me in ways, but it's it's meant that I thought, okay, I would need four months of money to pay for food and lodgings to write at minimum. You know, yeah. maybe six. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm forever uh, putting the the idea for it back onto the. Um, boiling pot, and each time I think about it, I refine it slightly more. And um, again, I, I would like to think that I would keep making records until sort of four or five minutes before I died of old age. But also being able to write books or doing artistic things—you know—it uh, seems the best way to live. You know, I, I enjoy making things. So writing a novel from fiction would be a, a, a great thing to do. It's just more the time to do it or the circumstances to do mm. it. Um, maybe, maybe Germany is good for that, Maybe. You know, yeah, I was just thinking know. that. You uh, said
0: four or five months. Don't you know someone who's just uh, yeah, booked? My,
1: my job is like yeah, yeah, yeah. Out, yeah. an apartment in <laughs> Berlin for five months. Yeah. So, um, there you go. Yeah, but then again... <laughs> Could I do that, if I, if I suddenly forced myself to do that? Would I, I think with music, if I force myself to do it and just keep playing and writing all the time I can, but with a book, could I actually, the two or three times that I've started it, I've sort of faded out after a couple of chapters or, mm. but that's usually because I've been working, at the moment I'm not working nine to five. I resigned from my job six months ago. Um, do you miss the grind? Um, I, I guess it's just. Means I don't I mean, I miss right. the grind, but I miss the social aspect of it. Right. I, I like the fact that integrating with people work, work somehow puts you in the thing where you have to deal with people. And I was working in a, um, a public place, so I was seeing loads of people every day. Yeah. So that not seeing loads of people every day is slightly more isolating. I talk to the cat a lot more, mm. and the cat seems to understand this and talks back psychically. I think, but. The, um, In some ways, I I like that aspect of being in the world because it also forced me to be more understanding and because it was like a sort of retail public environment, when people were unreasonable, it forced me to not react or to hold my tongue or to um, discipline myself to see the good rather than the bad. So to some extent, um, working on the archive, finishing these albums, staying at home um, and doing that, made me slightly more isolated uh and i have to consciously go out and be part of the world in order to kind of get my fix of people in a way whereas when working in retail by the end of the day you're quite happy to go home and see nobody at all yeah, because there's yeah. so many idiots today and that man was absolutely impossible and it was all i could do not to tell him to go and take his donuts and the hard way yeah um so to some extent, it's always waxing and waning. You know? Yeah, yeah. When, when you're at home all the time, you kind of like think you should be out in the world. When you're out in the world, you can't wait to get home and close the door. And I yeah. think it's always going to be a combination of the two. I mean, the... Um... Yeah, that's been my life too, to some yeah. extent. Yeah. Like
0: I enjoy my time at home.
1: Yeah.
0: And then I think when I interact with people, shit, I'm not very good at this anymore.
1: I, you know, It's really easy to, I, to lose To lose it, yeah, that's right. right. And
0: then when I'm out and about and socialising and I'm okay at it, I enjoy it, but oh. absolutely I can't wait to get yeah, home in a lot of cases. Your trip to
1: yeah. Auckland where you were doing lots yeah. of interviews and being around, must have been, there must have been times when you came back to where you were staying and thought, I'm sick of talking, I don't want to say anything anymore whatsoever, you know. But the other way around, when you're sitting mm. at home all the time, when you go out suddenly, blah, 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 you know, all for myself, it's, it's mm. kind of like it's always a neither... Neither situation on its own works. It has to be a combination of the two.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 mean, actually, that trip to Auckland. I was there for two weeks. I talked to lots of different people. I loved it, and I couldn't oh. get enough of it. Oh. I, I would have been out longer. I could have reckoned I could have stayed there another week, oh. and just, and obviously, I could have kept um, booking interviews with people for ages up there. I guess because I don't go there much, and it was the longest amount of time I'd ever spent there. And oh. I finally felt like I actually had some bearings. Like oh. I knew what I was doing. But I did have a bit of a crash when I came back here in in that I was like, shit, I need to get my life back in order Uh -uh. because it was very easy to, you know, and I don't don't know that I've got an addictive personality or what, but it was very easy in a heat wave to pull into a bar at three o'clock in the afternoon when you weren't actually punching a clock yeah. and have a beer and watch yeah. the world go by and then yeah. think it would go by a little better with another one yeah. and then maybe and then an, yeah. a,
1: and then maybe something to
0: eat that's right yeah yeah. yeah 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 so you're spending money and yeah. you're not actually really looking after yourself yeah. that well and you're on this sort of weird it's like a hyper glide time because you're actually getting heaps done yeah. but there's no you know there is something quite good about yeah. punching a clock yeah. Um, as well as, you know, missing the people that I love and live with um, and, and my stuff that I like because uh-huh. I'm a uh-huh. bit of a hoarder. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, no, no, I did I did have a bit of a, you know, a moment when I came back. Not, not, not a depressed crash, uh-huh. just a, God, I couldn't keep that up for much longer. Uh-huh. I'm actually pleased to be back here uh-huh. and, yeah.
1: This yeah. Is the same with a tour? like when you, Yeah, well, you, well that's, every day I was thinking you, you, this was going, like me
0: doing uh, a tour. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of day, was.
1: something to do, mm. free drinks, uh, mm. interesting people, a show, uh, the endorphins that the show releases, or the same with the interviews, a good interview mm. it releases endorphins, and then suddenly you get back to your flat and you think, God, I forgot to defrost the fridge before <laughs> I left, and there's a whole bowl <laughs> of cheese and a yeah. whole pile of bills and... Yeah. Um, I mean, it's usually some money at the end, but the, that whole thing of when you finally, finally get back to your own nest somehow, it seems a little bit. Dull in comparison to Party Central and being the centre of attention all the time, yeah. especially when you're on tour, you, you benefit from the fact that people are coming along to see That's you. That's right, and all yeah, that sort yeah. Of stuff. So suddenly you're you go, on display. Where are the fans, you know? The cat, they're in the, the, the know,
0: ceiling and they need the you know, dust cleaned off yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. think, but
1: can look at all the cobwebs. we didn't Yeah. I've done those before, I kind of like left, so it's kind of, there's always that come down at the end of the tour, but I think anything like that, it's always a... It's a combination of a little bit of one and a little bit of the other and there's no real way to be happy with one if you, if you end up uh, ignoring the other eventually you miss it. So staying at home all the time you get stuck there, being on the road all the time you get stuck there. It has to be swapping one back and mm. forth and taking the best of both worlds.